Kia ora everyone, welcome back to the Side Hit Podcast, I'm your host Pat Tony, and today with us we have Danny Kiwi Maya. welcome Danny. Kia ora. How you been? Good as, yeah, happy to be home again. Mean, so you've been home for a, a little bit? You know, it doesn't happen that often anymore, I think last time I was down here was 2018, early, straight after the Kaikoura earthquakes, which happened like the night I arrived in Wellington at my folks' house, so it's good to be back, and um, yeah with my folks and you're up uh Kadrona with uh Diggs and Spy yesterday Diggs and Spy yesterday they hosted me at Kadrona and we just was well, so my first time in the summer at Kadrona so going on the mountain and riding trails and paths that you're normally riding on a snowboard for the first time on a bike you're like fuck it's nuts how the landscape changes a bit up there in summertime eh? and y- yeah but it's also yeah. nuts how you look back and you go I used Oh, this is this bank that oh I remember this bit and you're blatting past <laughs> yeah. on a bike and you're like oh this is fun because you're 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 still using lighting the train you know yeah um, so, they were good hosts yeah we oh, burned man. some miles did some vert oh sweet mm. oh I guess we'll crack into it uh, Danny where are you from and how did you get into snowboarding so I'm obviously a Kiwi I was born and raised in Korokoa which is in the bay in Wellington in the Hart Valley up on a hill went to Hart Valley High School. And um, I bailed out of New Zealand on a surf trip to Indo in 88. And when I got to Switzerland on my trip after Indo, um, I ran out of money. And um, some dude said, hey, come and get a job in the mountains. And I'm like, the mountains? Okay, that's something different. And I got a job uh, working in a ski resort in Switzerland. So, So how did Switzerland come around from Indonesia? So there's a bit of a default there. My mum's Swiss. Right. My dad's German. So when I left NZ, I left with 400 bucks and a one-way ticket. And I said, okay, I'll blow two months in Indo in the S, and I'll go to my grandmother's 80th birthday in Zurich, and I'll see what happens after that. Oh, sweet. <laughs> and so that sort of led to standing sideways on the snow in Switzerland? That led to, like, the necessity to earn some money. Yeah. And, um, and that was just like, okay, what do you do in the mountains in the snow? And I suppose, well, I'm not surfing now. Mm. Let's, uh, let's try snowboarding. And it was really, really my first time getting on the snow. I did a couple of sessions trying stuff out in New Zealand, but I hated it. Mm. I wasn't really into snow in the early, you know, yeah. 80s and NZ. So how was the first day on the snowboard? Um, kind of a drowning feeling, you know? <laughs> A lot of catching edges, you know, mm. a lot of stumbling, a lot of sore, painful moments. Mm. It wasn't like, oh, I, I can ride a snowboard, you know. Yeah. And I was with two skiers most of the time. Um, there wasn't really any other snowboarders in the resort where I was at. So I kind of followed them. And that just, mm. I think that helped me create my style as it is today, you know, like bigger open arcs looking for different lines. And they were guys that would ride in the pal all the time and hike into shoots. And, mm. and I just followed them literally by default. I was like, okay, that's, I suppose, what you do. Yeah. So was there, a, I'm assuming there's a moment where things clicked and you're like, yeah, snowboarding's the shit. Like, what was that for you? Uh, probably, no, not probably. Most definitely, the first time I was able to go from a traverse line and pick my line and do four or five turns in a fresh field of snow, stop at the bottom, look up, and see my signature. Yeah, right. That, that blew me out of the water. 
Mm. It's like the first pump on a wave, you know, when you actually get to do a takeoff, you do a bottom turn, you rise up on the wave, and then you get to drop again and you pick up speed. That was my first moment on a surfboard. I'm like, I'm going to surf for the rest of my life. My first moment on a snowboard that I saw I could actually, like, sign that face, that fresh face with no tracks and own it forever Mm. for that moment, for that snowfall, that was me. That was, I was hooked. Oh, man, that is a cool feeling, eh? It's a look back and like, yes, that's that's mine. Shit hasn't changed either. Oh, it's, that's still my ultra, ultra stoke. There's been certain times in my snowboarding life where I've turned around and taken a picture of of those turns. Like, that was just too cool. Yeah, Tom. <laughs> yeah totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so were you in Switzerland for quite a few years then, or were you sort of bouncing back to New Zealand? Yeah, I went to Switzerland in 88. I was 22, which is kind of... These days, they'd be like, well, that's when you retire from snowboarding. <laughs> <laughs> um, so people are like, what? How does that work? But I was 22, didn't know anything. So for me, I was just a grommet, first mm. time in the snow. And I rode for the first winter, and the so 88, winter 88, winter 89, and then I came home. Right. And um, I decided to come home because I was snowboarding, and I realized, oh, um, A, I haven't seen my folks for a while. And uh, I might get to explore New Zealand from a different perspective, you know. Me. Didn't know, didn't know the South Island at all. Right, yeah. At that time. Yes. But True North Islander, you know. Bit of a different world when you're stepping the mountains down here from the beaches. Yeah. Um, so with Switzerland, it's a compulsory military service there. Did that affect, did you have to find a way out of that? or? Yeah, you know, down, yeah, it's a good, very, very good question because... I think it generally speaks to what do we know as Kiwis when we go overseas? You know, we always are, you know, open-minded and optimistic and adventurous. But when you get into a, a new, let's call it, um, social structure, you need to know all the, all the rules and regulations and limits. And I had no idea. I didn't know I would have had to, had to register the minute I arrived. The minute you register, they call you up for military service. Right. And they were really angry with me that I hadn't registered earlier in my life mm. and that I hadn't come and done military service for them. And I'm like, hey, I grew up in an island in the South Pacific. I'm a Kiwi. Why would I register and come and do military for your country? I've mm. never been here before. Yeah. But they forced me to do military. However, since I was adamant not to do it, mm. purely because I just didn't want to spend that time, and I just didn't want to go to go into a military. I didn't want to go to war. I didn't yeah. want to. Just didn't want to do that. So I started. Um, I started inquiring. There was two ways you can get out. One is mentally, mm. and uh, I decided I, I wasn't a good enough actor yeah. to act. You know, like a nutter. Yeah, and all my relatives at the time that I actually listened to at the time said um, that's a bad move for your career. Mm. Um, the other one was um, you have some sort of physical injury, and I was pretty active at that time, and I was snowboarding, and I was stoked. You mm. know, I was into it, and I was I had nothing wrong with me. So I I was told by this dude that I met. That if you tap your knees with a hammer oh, yuck. long enough, you, they'll get water in them. Holy and shit. if you then apply that when they call you up for your medical, that you're incapable of doing any heavy activities, they will push you back nine months. Mm. And then if you, in those nine months, when you get called up again for your second medical, do it again, 
they will remove you from the military service and you'll go into what you call civil service, which is, which is really cool when you go building bridges in the forests and stuff. So I did that twice. Got enough water on my knees, tapped them enough oh. so it was just liquid. So that was tapping the, your kneecap? Was just around the sides and the bottom right. of your knee with a hammer. And um, I would do it, I would do it, I would hide from everybody and I'd do it under, I remember sitting under uh, a stairwell, tapping my knees for ages, <laughs> for two or three days before the meeting. Oh, and then when shit. I went to the meeting, I would literally just, you know, start to say, I can't get up. And they said, get up, you know, you've got to get up, come here, you've got to register and you got to pick your decision. Is it going to be like panzers or infantry or grenadier in the mountains? And I'm like, uh, I don't think I could do any of those. I have a problem. My knees keep swelling up when I do sport. Okay, nine months. Come back in nine months. So nine months, they, um, they did the same thing. And I did the same tapping. And I got the same water in my knees. Um, disclaimer, water in your knees goes away. Mm. And there's no long-term injury, so you, right. you're good as <laughs> if anybody wants to apply this yeah. method. Anyone needs to get out of the it's military a, or yeah, anything yeah. thereof. Take note, um, or at least take note that you need to know your responsibilities before you go live in another country because they will mm. get you. Yeah. And I got out of it, and I did civil defense for all the years I lived in Switzerland, and I so, was happy as Larry. So what that entail, civil defense? Civil defense is they call you up for um, workshops. And the workshops are based in your community. And if there's been, let's say, some avalanche damage during the winter and it's springtime and the bridges are broken and the paths are destroyed or there's uh, trees to move or there might be, as you know, in Switzerland, there's bunkers everywhere mm. from, from, from the war and from, you know, nuclear protection. So they might even ask you to go and paint the inside of a bunker for three days right. with a mate, you know. And uh, so it's community service. It's community mm. service run by the government to make sure that everybody puts their time into taking care of the country. Sounds like a better deal than blowing shit up, yeah, people it, up and stuff. It's a way better deal. Mm. So were you fluent in the language and that sort of thing at that time? Yeah. Otherwise, coming from New Zealand, that would be a bit awkward. you got to join this military. I can't even speak the language. <laughs> yeah, and I think, um, again, this is a really um, big value that I'm kind of investing with my daughter. And I think for anybody growing up and anybody who has children or anybody who's even alive today, if you can spend time or find a way to learn another language, by all means do it. You know, mm. it was one of my biggest advantages going overseas that my mother was Swiss, my dad was German, and they forced us to speak Swiss German in the house. So my paternal language is Swiss German. My native language is English. Right. So when I was three... I probably only spoke Swiss German and then I left the house to go to, you know, pre-K, kindergarten, mm. primary, and my English obviously that's flourished pretty, from there. That's pretty awesome. That opens up a whole continent, really, doesn't it? Um, it opens a culture, yeah, an culture, understanding yeah. and an acknowledgement and an accessibility to other people's ways of thinking and doing and understanding their history mm. through language, you know? Mm. So, you, it, yeah, it opens... It opens other opportunities, but I think that's the most important. Your acknowledgement of people yeah. and their and their mindset, their way, their DNA, their culture, and their understanding more of you because you have the ability to go that bit further in explaining yourself mm. and who you are and how you think and how you perceive that, what you're experiencing mm. in front of them, you know, because you're going through a whole lot of big emotional waves when you when you get out of your, you know, Aotearoa bubble. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the amount of doors when I was in Japan that opened up a bit more because I had some grasp of the language was kind of mind-blowing. 
Yeah. And, and uh, I wasn't even that good. Because you speak but Japanese? Not well. But, but you um, speak. Mm, but when I worked in the workshop, uh, snow workshop over there, yeah. the guys under me were Japanese that couldn't speak English. And I had like, you know, basic sixth form Japanese. But we would just get through the nights by pointing out things. And I'd say English and I'd say Japanese and we'd laugh at each other and, you know, sign language, all, all those things. And it was pretty cool because I got to experience, and this was in Niseko, which is a pretty foreign influenced area of Japan. Yeah. And they took me out to where they chose to go and eat and do things. And so I got to see there, which I think Niseko has changed a lot since then, but that was real cool. It was real cool to, yeah. you know, there's a couple more doors opened up than if I just went and hung out with the Kiwis and Aussies, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But, I think it's probably invaluable, invaluable both ways, you know. Mm-hmm. People won't really ever get to understand culture to outside of their realm. Mm-hmm. If you don't humble yourself enough um, and start to learn how they are thinking in their space, yeah. then, they're, then they're comfortable enough to becoming let's call it vulnerable in mm. sharing their kind of weaker areas of their life so you can understand what their strengths are, what their weaknesses are. Mm. And then you build you build those bridges, you know, you build community bridges, you build opportunity bridges. Mm. Um, you build you just build build much more of a global community, you know. You realise how much you actually have in common with people as well. Yeah. You know, and there's you can sort of see some media outlets being like, oh they're all this and that. So well, actually, they're just people living their life like we're trying to live our life. And yeah, they're you know, human, you know. They're, yeah, yeah. They're doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. Yes. All right. Um, we'll uh, take a bit of a segue. <laughs> um, so you were coming back to New Zealand uh, in the early nineties. Um, who were some of the writers that were you were sort of riding around with at this time and doing things with? So at the beginning, um, I obviously connected really quickly with the people that I knew before I went overseas, and that was a guy called Jim Hall. Uh, Jimbo was in Oakuni a lot. He was part of the AJ Hack crew, and he was one of the wildest, better, you know, mountain riders. And he was really, he was really owning it and local up there. Um, he was always interested in other stuff. He wasn't interested in like what we were doing with snowboarding. He was just interested in shredding. Mm. And uh, he was also the guy that um, was kind of building boards even in the 70s and going down sand dunes and stuff. So he was the guy that first introduced me to the sport, but I was, I I didn't ride at that time. Then there was Dino. Dino and Hayley were a a big influence in my life, more so than in my career. Um, Obviously, Dino was a, you know, he was a, he was... He was like a right hand in, in, in like stoke on writing and even photo shoots. We did a lot of work on the North Island with Sheena Haywood, like photography work. Oh, yeah. And she got us a lot of courage at, at the onset, especially on the North Island, because there wasn't anybody really focusing on the North did, Island and shooting the mountain. Did Sheena Haywood take that awesome picture of Dino? It was a cover. And he's jibbing that rail. Oh, yeah. We were sessioning so that sad. together. So it was me and Dino. Right. I apologize if someone else is sessioning, but I so remembered it was me and Dino. And I think there was somebody else sessioning it. Um, Sheena was there, and that was killer, mate. He scored mm. that big time. He nailed that. He was such the jibber at the time already. Yeah. I think me, but maybe Alex was already involved at that time, McDonald, because mm. he was local up there. I just remember that picture still, and he's... I didn't... 
I mean, it's still pretty early in snowboard days in New Zealand, about 93 or 4 or something, and trying to figure out snowboarding myself as a t- kid. And just like, but he's not even on the snow. What the hell is going on? And think about that picture now, and he's on that seller's neck. That's a huge collector's item. And yeah. It's so raw. It's like, man, that picture, it's still to this day, still still sticks up now. Yeah. And it's, what, 28 years later or yep. something. And I can remember yeah. sitting in the snow, taking laps with him, watching him do it, lock it, you know, come off the end right away from it. Mm. Trying to actually emulate what he was doing because he was always that one step ahead when it came to to jibbing. And if you look at that photo, you know, in detail, you realize it's the worst, shittiest, rainiest, wettest, typical, standard, beautiful North Island day, (laughs) you know, as Turo was at the time. Mm. Yeah. Yep. So Dino was sort of flying the flag of that freestyle movement back then. Was he was just that far ahead of everyone else sort of thing with in regards to that? style of writing him um alex mcdonald for sure was from a like big man on the mountain owning Mm. it like going bigger higher more solid and just like thumping the landings and Mm. riding it away Mm. i think he was like definitely like tier one there at the time you know right and for me to come and you know you got to understand i i grew up riding in europe yeah. It's a different approach to snowboarding. They emulated a lot of the American style, and, and that's what they probably what they aspire to. And they brought that in, and they 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 left their mark so heavily on me because it was something I didn't have as much exposure to in mm. Europe. I got more of that exposure in New Zealand actually, mm. and through Steen Webster as well, who was you know like a huge figure in in my life in using on snowboarding. I got the impression back then, and I could be wrong. So if I am, please tell me that you sort of had the two cultures of snowboarding. You had the European, which was very alpine, freeride-based, maybe heavier ski influence even. Yeah. And then you had the American side, which was almost just a direct descendant of skateboarding and surfing and sort of not-so-ski-influenced. You yeah. sort of had, from, well, from the era I sort of came aware, it was like, I was looking at, like, Mike Rankwick, Chris Roach... Jamie Lynn, Noah Selaznik, I wasn't really aware of. Yeah. To, to me, the media I've seen of the European guys was normally hard boot. Yeah. Like, gnarly hard boot dudes sort of thing. Yeah. And is, am I kind of right You're or am I off the mark? You're 2,000% right, you know. Right. It was something I struggled with a little bit from how stoked I got after a season in New Zealand to go mm. back to Europe and realise I was... I was going to end up becoming more Europeanized, you know, yeah. just because of the people I was surrounding myself with until, and I must say until the Scandies broke that mm. separation or married that separation and created a whole nother look and feel, you know, mm. the Peter Lyons and the Daniel Franks and the Ingemar Bachmanns when they started getting into yeah. the play and the Jürgen Norviks and all those and that and Terry, of course, mm. that started I, almost to homogenize alpine technical, I would call it mm. more technical writing, um, precision writing, which wasn't as brash and loud and robust, mm. but it was long-term and it was refined. And then they joined that with freestyle. They were mm. all great, great skaters and they understood all that and they applied their own look and feel to so it. So do you feel that Do you feel that when the, the Scandinavian, like Terrier and Ingemar and Sibu Kohlberg and all those guys came along, 
and because they had this say, Nordic upbringing and ski, they've all been on ski since they were, you know, knee high to a duck. That that maybe put them ahead of their American counterparts as far as snowboarding technique, all that sort of thing. Or yeah, yeah, I totally think that. Mm, so yeah. mix that with the skate influence, you just got a deadly combination. Deadly, yeah. yeah. It was just it just took time. Mm. As with everything in Europe, it takes longer. Yeah. But it, then it becomes much more established. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I I think even my my character was always something that took a little longer. It wasn't as brash as others. Yeah. Um, but I always focused on the long term, like how do I get through the season? How can I apply something that's going to last me for a longer time? Yeah. And not so much how can I impact the, the moment now here forever and then if I blow out and I die tomorrow, I don't care. Yeah. That wasn't really my kind of approach and my my culture and my values and so i i I enjoyed the european way and how how it evolved and where it evolved to and where it is today you know i'm super proud of that Mm. and i think it's helped also the americans you know grow and evolve and mature and as Mm. they've they've helped you know the asians and uh uh, i mean the japanese now are at the forefront the chinese are amazing you know everybody (laughs) the australians the key i mean you know everything's just just one big melting pot of talent it's kind of cool now that there's more um regions becoming a part of it whereas say the 90s it was sort of north america europe and a little bit of australia new zealand and like you say now you've got like a chinese snowboard halfpipe team japan and even Eastern European and snowboarding's in Russia now and all these it's, it's really quite cool how it's become something for everyone mm-hmm. it's kind of I was talking with someone the other day about it and sort of like snowboarding's kind of like what rock and roll is now like rock and roll started in the 50s as the this teenage thing and now it's for everyone like my dad and I both listen to rock and roll music and etc cetera, etc cetera. and snowboarding's kind of like that now too like was generally in the 90s teenagers 20 somethings if you've seen someone in their 30s or 40s like whoa like my granddad for example he was in his 50s in the 90s and you're like check out that far out old dude you know whereas now you wouldn't even think twice about seeing anyone that age and Mm -hmm. that's pretty cool Mm -hmm. um Sorry, I'm being on him. That was a bit of a rant there on my part. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> no, easy, and I'll check you on one thing. I think, you know, back in the, even in the 90s, things, there were subcultures, you know. There was mm. people like, people that lived in Anchorage or in Valdez and grew up in that area, or people like in Jackson Hole or in Tahoe or in California, and then, then the East Coast, mm. um, compared to people that lived in the French Alps or up in the Scandinavian resorts that were all bullet hard and artificial snow or... Uh, the Austrian and the Aesthetica crew that lived in, you know, a certain valley in Austria, they all started and created their own look and feel and style, mm. and they became known for that. Yeah. And these days now, those styles have become available and, and identifiable and achievable. Mm. So now people can actually, actually understand um, through style they can understand a personality better. They can even identify where people have come from in the past. But today, style has become something so unique and it doesn't have to be... You don't have to be from Jackson to have that certain style. Mm. You don't have to be an aesthetic to have that certain style, you know. But thanks to those subcultures and those kind of valleys and those entrenched um, communities, um, all those beautiful identities came so out of it. So was know. that pretty cool, travelling as a snowboarder back then? You'd be like, get somewhere, be like, they do it so different than me, I've got to get in on this, or, or like, oh, I'm not into that, or... 
Yeah, that, that sort of that's thing, interesting or... you say that. So I'm, I'm someone who wakes up um, every day a little bit anxious. You know, am I going to get through my day? What's, what's going to hit me today? Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of kind of... I do a lot of stuff in the mornings to get myself ready for my day and I do kind of bookends, morning prep for the day, like physically and emotionally and mentally and then I, and I check out the end of the day, how was my day, take stake of the day and then I go to sleep. So when I was traveling, I wasn't that mature, if you will, mm-hmm. and the world was quite overwhelming. So if I'd go uh, for an event or a show or a contest to Japan, I was really nervous. You know, I was kind of anxious. What am, what, what's my place in all this? Yeah. And I was such a curious kid, mm. as I think a lot of Kiwis are. Yeah. You know, we're optimistic and we're very, very curious. I was often taken by everybody else's styles and attitudes and approaches. And it, sometimes it actually got me a little lost. I'd spend a lot, to, a lot of time being an observer Mm. You know, instead of being like, oh, Danny Keen, well, my's in town here, the show must go on, and, or watch yeah. this guy, and I'd be, uh, I'd be a little bit more, uh, kind of like more interested in watching what you guys are doing, because I want to learn from it and, and, and become a better me, you know, or, mm. or see what the values are in it all. And it's going to make your writing a better writer too, and that sort of thing, right? Or just check my own writing, take stock of that, take a step back and go, so where am I in all this? Mm. And over maybe 10, 12 years of being a pro, I eventually found my voice. Mm. But it took a lot of failure. It took a lot of sad moments. It took a lot of, you know, losses or wrong directions or periods where I would just, um, I don't know, inherit somebody else's approach to try and understand, is that something for me? Yeah. And then, nah, fuck that. Yeah. You know, that's not me, that's them. And then you take a step back or you move forward. And I think the... The kids of today that are really, really good and advancing really fast at a young age, yeah. they're, being, they're, they're more aware of themselves mm. and they're more aware of how they can take stock of the opportunities around them and apply them to their own personality mm. and persona. Mm. There's also been a big groundwork laid in front of them so that they maybe don't have to be in that position too, right? Whereas when you were a pro, there wasn't, a huge groundwork in front of you or anything right you were sort of yeah it was it was the wild west open territory scenario Mm. but within that there was already some set tracks in the snow so Mm. you would you know how you follow tracks and then you're looking okay i'm gonna okay i'm not gonna follow that i'm gonna go this way Mm. and you start heading off into the unknown and now it's a labyrinth of trail Mm. (laughs) it's all tracked out at 6 a.m when you open your eyes up in the morning the life is you know your feed's full you know so where are you and all that it's really easy to get lost in all those tracks and trails and what i call clutter and noise so for young kids today to wake up and set their path for the day and visualize how they want to get through their next objective or goal it's it's as easy as it is hard Mm. And, um, you know, I, I really, really hope that kids today, with all this noise and clutter, not just kids, even adults, have someone, mentors and advocates, be it parents or sponsors or brothers or sisters or just friends and community, that they can be honest with and ask true questions to, you know, mm. and, then, uh, and then grow from there, you know. Yeah, because like, there's an instructor up the hill, Damien, and he you know, teaches instructor training, that sort of thing. And one of his things he makes his uh, students do is to go watch a video from 90, uh, like a Mac Dog or something from 1995. They're like, why? He's like, just watch the tricks. And they watch the tricks. And you're like, now, 
that was the first time a lot of those tricks had been done. Like, no one knew that was possible. And it's one of those things where you suddenly see the sort of light bulbs go off above people's heads after that, be like, oh shit, that's, <laughs> wow. Like, there was nothing, but now it's back in sort of that 90s era, it's like, were 900s possible? Now it's like, shit, 12 year olds do. <laughs> like, it's, yeah, you know, and so it's pretty cool. And it must be pretty cool to sort of been around to have sort of a block in that foundation to branch it to where it is now sort of thing that there's this opportunity now that's that's going to be pretty cool like, yeah you know. yeah that's interesting you say that when that when you say things like that it makes me think how was that for us you know mm. what were we thinking mm. and i i know at the time personally i wasn't working on style back then I was lurking on trying to do more on a snowboard. Mm. When I sort of when I saw someone do a turn, I learned how to do a turn. Yeah. I didn't learn how to do my signature turn. I just mm. learned how to do a turn. Then the threes, the fives, the sevens, the nines, you know, and it just kept going up. And the variables and the switch ones and the blind ones and and you know the bonks and then the you know all the all the other urban tricks and all those elements. When you start snowboarding, or when we started snowboarding, we or I'll speak about me because I can't speak about anybody else really. But I know that I try to evolve my snowboarding from what can I do on a board? Mm. How can I improve my performance? Yeah. And suddenly it became, oh, if you can do this trick, then you're part of that certain genre or that certain kind of group or, or culture or cult or level or you win the contest. Yeah. These days, you already know. I can tell you from being, you know, hair judge on at the TTR for so long in the past, don't do that anymore, um, disclaimer, yeah. <laughs> um, that I could already tell you what a winning run would potentially be. And in the riders' meetings, we would tell them what we're looking for. And mm. they would ask questions, oh, I do this combo to this combo and this trick, would that get me a best score? Are you even allowed to answer that question? Like, we, we, oh, okay. We, so I'll finish yeah, this and then we'll yeah, go straight yeah, into yeah. that because that's a very, very good question because people don't understand how that always works yeah. in the mind of a, like, uh, a critic. Yeah. But um, these days, I believe if a kid knows all the tricks already, whether he can do it or not, and he can learn it and she can learn it at a very young age because it's kind of given, mm. that the, 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 the tool set and the rule book's given, this is how you do this trick. Yeah. And you're going to get there really quick. The most important thing is to not lose yourself within the trick because the only thing that will differentiate you from anybody else is the you. You and your expression, your personality, and your statement. And mm. if you only focus on that, you will... Excuse me. That's Guy LT. <laughs> Little message. G'day, Guy. Hello, Guy. We'll talk to you later. Come on my podcast, Guy. Yeah. <laughs> we could, we could <laughs> tap him in right now. So if you don't lose yourself and you thrive on being complete as an individual within a mm. trick you will make a statement that might not make you win mm. but it will leave a mark yeah. and the only mark you want to leave in snowboarding in my eyes and from my experience with my career is you is the mark that that belongs to you mm. it's the most true honest and inv invaluable mark you can leave because it's a, an individual thing at the end it's of the unique. day right you it's mean? your it's your asset it's your collateral it's 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 what you're worth mm. So I feel like, um, say, if you take an issue of New Zealand snowboarder back in, say, 96 or something, and go through and you'd have 
like Ollie Brunton, Trevor Ponting, Quentin Robbins, Duke Bray, Paul Trapsky, Tony Walston, all these all these heads, all so different. Those like, are big names you just yeah. listed. <laughs> and yeah. but they're all like gnarly writers, like phenomenal. Yeah. But you could tell like if they all did this uh, three sixty, you could tell who's who is what. Yeah. Right? Yeah. They all had a unique take on it. So yeah. the thing it was sometimes I don't really feel like it's kind of the same today. Or, or am I just sort of tripping a little on that one? Um, I wouldn't say you're tripping, but when you come to being a critic and you start mm. dividing up, obviously there's the spectators mm. and the friends and the fans, fans and the families. They will always put their bro or, or, or sister forward first. Yeah. He won. She won. You know, um, when it comes to being the critic, the poor critic, the judge, the head judge, and you have to, whether it's online or live with a panel of pro writers or ex-pro writers or qualified IJC judges, whatever it may be, um, it comes down to a much bigger package and you break it down into details. Mm. And that's where I kind of stop and they continue. I stop and go, you can break it down into details, but you can't take it out of a school book. Yeah. You cannot take it out of a, a 1 to 10 list of mathematical parameters that you can learn at an international judging criteria uh, class or program. You have to know the terrain. You have mm. to know the weather. You have to know the conditions the riders are put against. You have to know the individual. And you have to know what's going on in the industry yeah. from trends and trickery and complexities. And then you've got to put the person in the place and you come up with a cocktail of subjective nuances, yeah. and it gives you scores. Mm. And then you put it into, you know, poor, below average, average, good, yeah. excellent, and then you get a range, and then you get a number, and then you get a result. Sweet. And uh, I just hope the person that sits on podium isn't just the person that did best tricks, because for me it's still all about the person, the style, yeah, the, the impact, the what's the left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so get back to that question I asked before. Um, if you're in a judging clinic and you, you've got all your riders and they're asking what tricks can they do, is that actually something you're allowed to ask as an uh, answer as a judge? You well, I'll always say you can do any fucking trick you want. <laughs> you know, you're we're not going to tell you what you can do. We can just tell you what what one trick would score more as a trick executed the same way, landed the same place in the transition with the same amplitude, you know, with the same clean, tight, solid grip for the length compared to another trick. Yeah. And um, as as the industry develops and writers develop, certain tricks are just harder to do. And that can even be subjective, you know. Yeah. For some writers, switch is easier. Yeah. For some writers, regular is harder. For yeah. some writers, they value a trick more. And then you start going, okay, we want to see the variation, you know, and we want to see, we want to see commitment, you know, mm. above and beyond. We want to see risk. When we say how far you're going to take it, we want to see the sport grow. In mm. in a story for me, if you're growing the sport <laughs> in that moment against your peers in the same conditions, I'll probably score you higher. You know, for me, that's the end of story. And, and I left the T-Tower for that reason because I was a little bit too pure in my thoughts. Mm. It wasn't mathematical enough for them. Well, seeing as we're on judging, there's a, a few things I think I'd like to talk about. There's a few of my listeners probably won't know what TTR is and that sort of thing. Uh, can we talk about uh, FIS and ISF? Yeah. Um, 
That's a good one. Let's add ISA to that, International okay. Snowboard Association. Okay. Uh, and someone might tell me I'm wrong on this, but I'll just, it's, it's a general conversation. International Snowboarding Association was the association that um, brought together all the national s- snowboard associations and had the n- international tour. That became the federation, the ISF. Yep. The ISF was, for me, the people's federation for snowboarding by snowboarders. That was obviously their tagline. First, Fédération Internationale du Ski, which is uh, the federation of skiing and ski sports and ski snow sports, but it never had anything to do with snowboarding until snowboarding became interesting. (laughs) As an Olympic sport sort of thing. Yes. And it had, yeah. Um, So what was your take on, so as a rider myself, I was like, yeah, Terry was right as far as Terry's boycott of the 98 Olympics someone that's been more involved in the judging and aware of behind the scenes and especially considering where snowboarding is now it's like the reason the winter olympics kind of is here um what's your take on terrier's boycott back in 98 terrier my take personal take yeah is back then it was totally justified yeah 100 percent backed him because what was his reasons for it they had uh, no authority and no experience in any way whatsoever to be the hosts and the patrons of the snowboarding community. And um, th- and okay, that was pretty well it. And that's not, you know, that's not me quoting him, that's me quoting me. Yep. Um, he'll have a, a much deeper and much more insightful point of view on that. Yep. But at the end of the day, we put a lot of sweat and collateral into snowboarding and developing what it was, and they saw it as an opportunity to generate, you know, uh, an economic value for their platforms because they were fading. Yeah. And that's a really uncool way to come on board unless you're ready for it mm. and you've and you've paid your dues on learning yeah. culturally, technically, environmentally, socially about what it is you're onboarding. It's like... Mm. Um, so, so FIS just hadn't done the homework on snowboarding. Not at all. And, yeah. They were just speaking empty words, you know. Yeah. And we knew that. Snowboarding's still a fragile community, and we know each other. We know what it means to us. Mm. And I think it's grown and matured, and I think the Olympics today are on point. Um, and they're great, and I watch them, and I love it. I watch the Olympics anyway. Mm. But I think snowboarding today, where it is as a sport and what it's doing for the athletes and how it's represented is as good or not as good as other pure snowboarding events out there so it, mm. it, it's on par you know yeah and I, I and i respect that so what happened um with the isf as i'm guessing that's not around they went more or i think they just went bankrupt right. first, first sort of coming through the money around they spent a lot of time fighting yeah instead of focusing you know what that means you yeah. know you're going to burn a lot of energies and resources and you're going to lose track of where you're going yeah. all the fuck the fist stuff and that and those were possibly important elements and aspects at the time but there was there was possibly also um missed energy and effort put into what mm. they needed to do to change and develop and evolve because they knew that that confrontation was coming mm. it was already there and do you suppose that maybe that fuck fist thing turned supporters away from them something like that or nah i don't no. think so i just think they lost they just put too much energy. Well, they put energy into it, which was valid, but they didn't put enough energy um, into their cause, which means, and you may be right there, certain partners, followers that were financially important for their ISF to continue, 
started questioning their relationship and association. Mm. And I do know that some people at the higher end of the ISF were getting a little comfortable in their position in, in their right. place, you know? Yeah. And um, that happens, you know? Yeah. People get, you know, complacent. And uh, they take their position and their responsibility towards the youth and the next gen uh, not as seriously as they should or could. And then suddenly it just falls apart. Yeah. Um, and so what was TTR? How did that come about? Uh, Ticket to Ride was an initiative um, started very early on with Dave Mailman, Terrier, Henning Anderson, Reto Lam, Drew Stevenson. Uh, I was also in the first meetings. Um, they founded that to basically give the riders a different opportunity to not do ISF or not do FIS and to give an, the, the industry, the brands and the athletes an independent tour. Right. And um, I was on pretty well from the beginning. I was the press secretary to start with, and I helped build the first budgets for the right. TTR. So the first two years, like, what is the money going to be spent on? How's it going to be spent? And it was me and Drew. Right. And um, it was it was great. It was great to see it evolve and develop and see how the, the engineering behind it and the people involved and the brands involved would define a scoring system, doing the starring system. Um, getting the brands to buy in, getting the athletes to understand, giving the first, you know, TTR World Tour champion, um, which was Matthew Krapel, his his right. you know his trophy at the U.S. Open, and we made sure it, the penultimate scoring goal was at the U.S. So there was like you know a pinnacle to the year, and so TTR was kind of putting together all the core snowboard events, essentially, sort of thing. Yes, all with the WSF. Oh, right. The WSF was involved at the onset to make sure that we had root well, it's snowboard federation. Oh, snowboard federation. The, like the one, two, I think the one, two, and three stars yeah. were managed through the WSF. Uh, and again, I, I could be missing some details there and getting a few things wrong, but that's kind of the basics. And then everything else was run by the independent companies and the TTR, and that was the three, uh, the four, five, and six star. Hmm. And that that gave everybody a path to excellence, you know. Yeah. And that was they were they had to be open events, so everybody could register and qualify somehow to get on the tour and get to a six star event. So I remember um, a few years back, it was probably about ten years ago now. Uh, Brent Screen with his Mad Wax brand yes. was the wax sponsor, and I couldn't believe it because all I knew about TTR before what you've just said was Terrier. Yeah. And it's like, well, anything with Terrier is like, well, that's cool because. He's a demigod in snowboarding. Yeah. And I just couldn't believe it, especially as I'm watching Brent make the wax in his garage and package it all up in his living room. Like, wow, like, this is pretty out of it. <laughs> and, you know, you that's, know? That's, that's beautiful you say that because <clears throat> you and people like Brent, who is, you know, my neighbor right now as I'm staying mm. with Dan Root here uh, for the week, he explained to me that story, and I was so embedded in the TTR and the SLS and the live scoring system and all that, and, and I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't know that was Brent. Yeah. You know, I didn't connect those dots because I I just, maybe I was disconnected well, and naive and yeah. I don't know what you call it, but those those stories were so true in that area and that platform gave a lot of hope and opportunity. So remember I went around to his house one day, he's like, check it out and show me the, the label for the wax bars. It's like that's the TTR logo. It's like, yeah, like what? What does that? You know, what's what? So huge. He's like, I'm, 
where the sponsor wax sponsor it's like holy shit and he was i think he's saying mel simmons yeah and she tried to put that together or something and she was part of the judging panel Mm, for quite a while right yeah 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 and that was so good to have her on it like firstly women all the way more bring them on you know there's absolutely no reason why they can't be better than us yeah. Um, or if at least give us a different point of view and, and, and perspective on a situation, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's all we're doing. We're basically documenting situations, you know, at the judging level. So was Mel sort of the sole female judge or was there quite a few? No, there was Satu Javale. Yeah. Um, was she a Burton right back in the day? Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, and yeah. she was a fantastic judge, mm. you know. Um, and most of the judges I had were normally I would only invite ex-pro writers to be right. on my paddle. And I was obliged to have IJC judges. Yep. Mel was an IJC judge, but she was also a writer. But she yep. was an IJC judge first and foremost. And um, at least for us, the way we, we, we qualified our panel. But then you had everybody, you know, from Rankwood to Lynn. Um, I had I had pretty well most of the writers. Even Terrier was on my panel once so as a judge. that's got to give the panel some esteem, right? Like uh, if, like, <laughs> you've got this panel of, like... <laughs> The names you just said, Ranquet, Lynn, yeah, Harkinson. Pascal Imhoff, yeah, Harkinson. Like you just can't mess with that, right? Like, or would people still question something results with that? Be like, no, nah, Terrier said it sucks, or Terrier said it's awesome, or no, he, like, I, 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 I needed them there mm. because I believed that they were the only two cr- true critics yeah. that were on point and timely to give a true response, which will always be subjective. Mm. But if you have your peers judging your peers, for me that was like um, a deal breaker if I wasn't allowed to have ex-pro riders or pro riders mm. judging uh, the X-Trail or Ian Style or uh, the Opens or you know the Evolution events or any of those six-star events. So Everything else I didn't mind so much, but the six-stars, if you want a pro rider, I wasn't going to be the head judge. Yeah. I mean, there's got to be a lot to be said from, I guess, pro riders having the empathy of what it's like to be a sponsored rider about to drop in. And there's maybe a bit more empathy there and respect, like two-way respect sort of thing with between the two communities of the Very much. current rider and pro rider now judge sort of thing. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Honest, true, credible critics, mm. you so, know? So how did judging come about for you? Um... So judging started for me, so I stopped competing at the, like at the World Cup level in 92 after the Ishkul World Champs, I think I got 12th overall, and um, I said I'm done. I want to be like um, Tommy Brunner. Tommy Brunner was an Austrian freerider. Rest in peace Tommy, he died in an avalanche and uh, I still miss him today, but he was kind of like, I just want to ride. I want to film, do editorial, do photos and snowboard and everybody was like even in 92 was like well how are you going to live from your mm. hey what are you going to do then if you're not going to compete i'm like well if i have to compete to be a snowboard then i don't want to be a snowboard i just want to snowboard mm. and that worked really well um and because i broke away from the contest scene in 92 uh andrew Hormont, who's the founder of Aaron style in innsbruck um and they had they needed style judges and tech judges because it was the air and style yeah i was invited with oliver holtzman as the two style judges oliver holtzman german legend yep 
Pro. Um, Ollie and me, because we were the style judges at the Erin Style in Innsbruck, wore wigs. <laughs> we were identified as the style clowns. And right. we would give style points. So were you guys not taken seriously by your peers or something? Or? No, it was just we wanted to be different than those techies over there that were right. from the judging committee because they were real techie judging committee people. Yeah. And we never liked them. We stopped competing because as athletes them. because of them. Right. I didn't want to be judged by them. Mm. I couldn't compete for them. Yeah. I stopped competing because of judging and I ended up becoming first and foremost a style judge. To, uh, uh, to support that mechanism within that event that, thank God, someone did, which was Ian yeah. Style and Andrew Hormon. And Gregor Nodder, who was the head judge of most of the events at the time and managed the judges, decided to take a break. And Andrew Hormon asked me, do you want to be the head judge? And I, I fell into that like management role and chops and felt comfortable in that role because it has another... It has another um, nuance of responsibility. And I ended up being the head judge of all the Aaron Styles for the next 15 years, and I ended up becoming like the head judge for the TTR, and it just evolved after that, that I was on tour most of the year at, at, at the six-star events. I wasn't doing the fives and fours. Right. A few of them for Von Zipper, but not many. That's how it started, and that's how it also kind of ended. Right. <laughs> so, so how long was your sort of rain and judging 15 15 years i'd say i did yeah well me yeah 10 10 yeah 10 10 12 yeah and were you still enough <laughs> tons were you still writing for radio at the time well i still have a radio board i still have a tanker tankers are still existing so Red. if we can say i still ride for radio but mm. let's if we want to talk about sponsorship that's another path we can go down in a minute um yes I was true to my sponsors for my whole career. I never right. changed sponsors. Um, and I stayed with Red Air up until just a few years ago when, when let's say, when, let's call it fishy, surfy boards started coming out. And yeah. Red Air and my collection and my quiver that I developed mm. was obviously longer boards, yeah. bigger, bigger mountain boards. And I wasn't really into riding those as much as the shorter, surfier boards mm. because... Yeah, things have changed. I have changed. I found more fun in those. Yeah, um, and that was that was a few years ago. And actually, now I'm you know I have a whole quiver of long, short, fishy, oh, you know, gentum so, sticks, you know, tankers. Oh, and, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a it's an interesting time to be a snowboarder now. There is really something for everyone out there. Shape, true, true. profiles, everything. Yeah. Um, well, how did we'll rewind the tape a little? Like, how did Radia? How did your relationship with Radia start? Because that that for us. It's like Danny Meyer, Radia, just it's it's those you know yeah beautiful like fish and chips like yeah. you know it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, so, and again, I'll, I'll just Harry and Paul, the two they were the owners of Radia and they're the guys that believed in me and believed in the brand. Harry still owns Radia and still builds boards. The current graphics in the market today. Uh, I didn't design them, but I developed them and worked with a designer to submit them to them. So I'm still emotionally connected and I'm mm. still passionate about having a current board that I had something to do with. And that's after many, many years. I mean, since yeah. 1990. So that's, you know, that's, that's a ticket of years. It started after I was sponsored. So my, let's call it sponsoring or flow program yeah. where you start in snowboarding when you get a board or a product and you... 
that becomes your kind of collateral to get through the winter. Um, started with uh, GNS, it went really quickly because GNS didn't deliver. GNU, they all broke. Border board, two snapped. Got a sponsorship, Nidecker. And Nidecker really got me through the first winter. And when I came to New Zealand, first time round, I was on Nidecker. And um, when I went back to Europe the following year, and I was all charged up, and I knew this is this is where I'm going. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to snowboard. I'm just going to snowboard. I saw Rad Air, which were called Radical Airlines, at the trade show, the ISPO. I was wondering if that's. I was never able to. Yeah, I was wondering if. Yeah, thank you. You've just answered the question for me. Yeah. Yeah. So. Radical Airlines. Yeah. 91, it could be 90, again, I'm such a bad historian, 1991, I went to the trade show at Isbo to plan my next season, I'm talking obviously to Nidecker, telling them they've got to put inserts in their boards, and I was, I did a plastics engineering degree, so I was always into equipment and building so, and designing. But pre-inserts, were people just drawing their own sort of like ski mounting, mounting skis? Yeah, you had a metal plate in the board. If you were lucky, yeah, and you were just drilling through and putting, Holy shit. you know, just putting a bottom plate and, a, and into it, and that's how your bindings would stay on there. If you were lucky, well, yeah, T nuts, yeah, coming through the other side, yeah. And if you were Christ. lucky, and maybe you'd even put a little um, PTEX, you know, stick on over the T nut so you'd be quicker. But mm. often you just, you know, Christ, so that, suck that, them in. That'd be a real ski influence. Yes, yeah. What's well, it worked for the ski? So why not on the boards? You yeah. Know? So you must have had a lot of people rip rip out of their boards there. Oh, fuck stuff. yeah. And heaps yeah. of holes because you'd move your bindings and stuff yeah. and rip oh them out. Or God, we have it so good them. now. Yeah. <laughs> oh so check God. this out. So Nidecker wouldn't do it that year. And I knew Rad Air would. And um, and I said to Nidecker, I, I don't understand where we're going as a brand if we don't have inserts. Because this company over here, they're doing mm. inserts. And um, so I rode. I, I was riding with with uh, with Nidecker for the season, and then comes spring, and we go to Sierra Nevada. I was invited down to do a coaching clinic, and there was a contest, and Red Air was there, and it was Patrick Hasler, Red Olam, and Mickey Frew, fucking gods, you know, demigods for me at the time. Mickey Frew was my like. That's the guy style wise. That guy, like I got a vision, a vision pouch. That's the dude. He had the pouch hanging off the bottom, so. doing the sickest airs and the posters in the in the shops. Red. Right? Boom. So um, I did really good in the contest there, <laughs> um, and and they said, "Do you want to ride for us? You want to be on the team?" And I'm like, "You got inserts. I'm on." <laughs> so it was because of the inserts and the riders and the team. Holy you know, shit. there was suddenly this community and technology. Mm. That allowed me to go rad air. And it was Radical Airlines. They had a lawsuit with Radical Snowboards. Mark Farner was a custom shaper in Switzerland. And it was pretty ugly. Um, so they said, okay, you know what? We'll just call it rad air. Nice. And then it was uh, me, Redo, Mickey Frewer, and Patrick Hasler. Mm. And we were kind of like the international team. And that started a very, very long, big, beautiful career of, you know, riding, traveling, promotion, um, friendships, mm. product development. Mm. So how did, because um, you were designing boards. Yes. Now, how did that come about? Because 
was that just a natural desire to make things better? Because you get some team riders that are like, oh, I don't care, I'll just ride whatever, and they don't really, so long as they get their boards, they don't really care. Were you sort of like, oh, I reckon I can make this better, or here's what I want to ride? Or Yeah. Well, this is something I think everybody should take heed of. When you get given something, if you don't care about what you got, and you just think it's 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 a transaction, you know, mm-hmm. it's going to get you from A to B. You may miss out on a lot of the opportunities within that transaction. And when I got a transaction, which is like someone gave me a beanie or a board or a binding or an opportunity or a lift ticket, I wanted to know what was behind it, yeah, what it meant to them, mm. and where their challenges were. So that apps that just allowed me to go. Okay, these are boards. Mm. How does it feel? Why is this board like this? Why isn't it better? Why isn't it different? How could it make me feel better on it? And then I fed them constantly, whether they asked it or not. It was probably a pain in the ass when I was a kid, you know. (laughs) I gave them information. Try this, do this. And they were really hungry in the 90s for people that cared. Yeah. There was plenty of people that was taking product and just going crazy. I mean, you know, life was good back then. You were just having a good time. But I was also investing a lot of my time into helping the people, giving me those opportunities Mm. to continue and sustain their brand by helping them to make better product. Nice. And I think everybody should give back in that way Mm. because you will get back for a long, Mm. long, long time. That's so cool as opposed to people that just take things for granted. Yeah. And uh, do you know Carlos Garcia Knight? No. He's a current um, Kiwi pro. He's pretty big on the Burton side of things. G'day, Carlos. G'day, Carlos. (laughs) Um, he'll, he'll be listening. He's he's one of those guys now that sort of makes you realise that snowboarding's still in good hands. The first time I met him was so cool because, like, workshop at Cadrona, I get a lot of sponsored people coming through. And, and the first time I met him, he came to the workshop and asked to use a gummy stone to take the bite off his edge. Sure, here you go. We got talking, like, oh, I'm Carlos, I'm Tony, and all this. And he's friends with JJ, who I've known since he was grown. And Carlos did the coolest thing because it was a new board he was sorting out and one of his friends that was there was like, why even bother? No, no, sorry, I got it wrong. It was an old board. He had a new board in the wrapper still. And one of his friends was like, just ride your new board. Why are you riding that one for? It's older. He's like, turns around. He's like, hey, it's a good board. Shut him up right then and there. And I was like, that was the moment there where I was like, you're man you can use our tools anytime you want yeah. you're all cool as fuck and yeah and he like he'll be listening to this he has a really big thirst for where everything came from yeah and and the past to get you know what was put in place that he's doing what he's doing now he's such a cool guy yeah and, big respect yeah. big respect carlos so mad mad love carlos. Mad respect um i won't say i hope you're listening so i know you will be and it's just um, to stay on that like when you mentioned, you know, there's a board in the wrapper, mm. but there's a board on my feet, Yeah, that's the one that counts. Yeah. And if you ride that board for two seasons, yeah. or, you know, obviously that board graphics change and they have a responsibility to represent the new product check, but at my stage, I will ride a board for a few years mm. because I know it and I love it and I don't really give a shit if it's not. The latest trending product because it works for me. And when we're coming back to what we spoke about earlier on in the podcast, the me in the you Mm. is the most important thing in your career, whether you're sponsored or not. So stick with your shit, 
respect it, milk it, and if you want to be good with your environment, don't go changing it every year, you know, yeah. milk it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, interesting you brought up inserts, because it's something I'm, I, I talk about it in the workshop the whole time, because um, it's interesting how the snowboard industry was able to standardize, it with the exception of Burton, because they already had their own thing going on with the three-hole patent. But it's interesting in that sort of 1994 era where the whole snowboard industry was able to standardise to the 4x4 and insert pattern. And yet, every time I get skis to mount, I've got to, depending on the brand, oh, I've got to get a Rosignol jig, a Tyrol. Like, no, the, the ski industry hasn't, like, standardised anything as far as they're all just stuck in their ways. Like, am I right that when that 4x4 insert thing come around and what it's evolved into now, that was a huge deal, right? Is that a trick question? I don't know. Oh, man, shit, there's people that, you know, like... Do you know... I, I, it's you know I'm, yeah. I'm kind of smirking, as you can yeah, see, because yeah. do you... Like, so the, the, everything you said is, is, is so true. You, mm. I mean, you're so knowledgeable. It's amazing. Um, but it takes me back to um, my early days with Red Air, mm where they didn't start with 4x4, of course. They mm. had that, you know, other insert. That sort of nine-hole pattern thing. Cheese grater pattern, you know, mm. at, the, at, the, at the ends of your bindings that you mm. kind of pick and flow around. So F2, which was a windsurfing and snowboard mm. company yeah. uh, with Pat, Philip Imhoff and a couple few other really good pros, more on the Alpine side, yep. and Rad Air, went into an R&D process. So the team riders were involved and the brands were involved in developing a standardized whole pattern. Yep. That we all know, that every single person on this podcast will know is for the 4x4 whole pattern. Mm. You have 4x4 or you have a burden or, you know. Yeah. The, there's a few others out there now. But um, that started and finished with Rad Air. Really? And... Just to add to that, which is quite humbling, because there was absolutely no ego involved at the time, the word 4x4 came from me looking at a photo or the memories of growing up with my dad's Series 1 and Series 2 Land Rover all my life. We were raised in Land Rovers. Mm. And that was the, you know, the the tried and trusted and true form of getting you anywhere at any time. It was the perfect Swiss Army knife, the Land Rover. Yeah. And I faxed Rad Air, Paul and Harry, when we were coming to the point of what are we going to call this system, I faxed them on a piece of paper, call it 4x4, and I told them the story of the Land Rover, my dad. Holy and today... Shit. We all just call it the 4x4 insert piston. I'm glad I asked that trick question. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I said, is that a trick question? Oh, man, well, I, I, there's It's a lot. pretty unknown. I think, I think that you're the second person ever that mm. I've just pinged to that to. I think there's a forum, like a, mm. a snowboard forum, that someone questioned, where does the 4x4 insert kick and pattern come from? And I yeah. says, yeah, I, was, I sent that as a fax and called it 4x4, and now everybody calls it that. Yeah. But you're the first person I think I tell face-to-face. Yeah. I just like, I get a lot of the younger guys working for me now that sort of aren't even aware that there was like the old nine hole patterns that we see on pre nineteen ninety four boards and that sort of stuff and you know it's it's cool way cool to get an insight especially on that that's fucking yeah I mean that's really cool to have that block like fuck because everyone like no one even thinks twice about the four by four insert pattern now or 
what it, what it has become is, but if you, know, you if you drill down on that and you go you know born and bred kiwi from the north island land rover inspired by his dad four by four pretty simple thing now when you think mm. about it faxed because they were facsimiles back then to a company that believed in it Mm. or the idea and it became an industry standard you imagine what you can do as all the listeners now with your ideas yeah your personal ideas and thoughts put them on paper or put them in a put them in a tweet or post them make sure that they are heard Mm. and believe in them and let them go and you you you'll you know you'll change the world (laughs) or you no, you won't change the world we didn't change the world but you know you'll make an impact yeah, well, that's awesome. Keep doing it. Like, holy shit. I sort of don't know where to go from there. That's unreal. Um, there was another brand that you're associated with was Fire and Ice. It was yeah. a outerwear brand, right? Yes, Fire and Ice was the youth or subculture uh, brand from a company called Bogner. Right. Bogner, Willy Bogner, Olympic skier, Germany. Uh, the kings and queens and the, the princes wore his clothes. It's totally unaffordable. It's like, I don't know, thousands of dollars. And uh, the B on Bogner used to mean, you know, um, means bedienung, which means service, please, when you turned up to a bar because I have so much money. So they, obviously, that was totally no, nobody in our world would ever wear that. Yeah. So they said, well, those guys, cool. <laughs> we want to make clothes for them. And yeah. so we need cool people to help us develop these clothes. Cool, if we can use that word as a term. Yeah. The funny thing is, is that in the early 90s, the head designer, he's still the head designer of Bogner today, was a man that brought his cousins, uncles and children and sisters and brothers to a village called School in Switzerland to learn how to snowboard. And I was always their private coach. And he, and we just had a good time. I didn't really know what he did. I didn't know what Bogner was or anything like that. They were just a family and they paid for me to go riding with them. Then what happens is he tells the owner of this Fire and Ice brand that comes to the resort and gets on a chairlift with me. And I'm like, oh, okay, so you're Mark Lauer. Hey, I'm Danny. I'm teaching your design. That's cool. Great. Get to the, and get up this lift. We do a run. He wants to know how to turn better or something. Okay, we get on the lift again. He goes, okay. He says, I'd like you to ride for us for Fire and Ice. Okay, cool. Fire and Ice, yeah, check. That'd be cool. You know, because you're like, yeah, that sounds cool. That'd be cool. Yes. And we're going to send you to Alaska to do a book in two months. Oh, what? Uh, oh, okay. Wow. Never been, you know, I mean, I was really just in my, it was my second year yeah. as a writer. And, uh, and I'm going to give you 10,000 euro. And this was on the lift. So from the bottom of the lift to the top of the lift, I literally went from coaching someone to what I called, I just turned pro. Yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. 10 grand, a trip to Alaska, filmers, photographers, a book was going to get published, a clothing sponsor from a brand like Bogner, which I knew they they wanted to invest in go places, and a team. And Red O'Lamb was part of that team. So I was like, okay. That dude, he's right. already on the Red Air team. He's already my team player. So yeah. suddenly we became, you know, double down teamies. Like mm. we call ourselves Spiegel, which is like mirror. <laughs> he had the same clothes mm. as me. I had the same board as him. Because Rito had that very iconic um, pro model. The Venus. The woman's legs yeah. on the bottom and stuff. Yeah. Um, so Alaska, holy shit. This is kind of a good segue into what I wanted to ask you uh. next, which was... Um, 
you rode in Alaska quite a bit in the early days of the big mountain riding with the King of the Hill competitions. I, I just would read about these things in New Zealand snowboarder. Yeah. Um, was did that come about from this trip sort of thing or? Um, no. Right. Uh, I mean, Alaska. I was introduced mm-hmm. to Alaska through this trip. We did some pretty crazy stuff, but it was all very focused on what we called a tribe trip. Um, so it was quite campaigny, uh, even though we did some pretty hairy stuff. And Rito got caught in an avalanche, knocked his front teeth out, and you know, it was all, it, there was some some serious stuff. And I realised Alaska is big and serious, yeah. but I like it. What I did like though was the rebels that I met at the time. Jay Lisk and Richie Fowler, that were poaching our lines. We were there right. from Europe to do a shoot. We wanted the first tracks, and we had arrived, and the plane had dropped us off with a heli, and these guys would fly in, cowboys, guns blazing, and they would just purposely just burn our faces, you know. <laughs> and and they were, you know, and the well, whole production crew was like, they can't do that. And I'm like... That's fucking rad. I want to be part of that crew. Mm. Were they being kind of like territorial, like sort they, of thing, or just just being rowdy? They were local. That was their mm. backyard, you know. Yeah. Um, and that made me realize that there's a whole other world up there. And from there on in, I made sure I would fly over to Europe and settle. I would either drive, fly into Anchorage and drive up to up to Valdez, um, or find another way of getting in, poach a lift and stuff, and then we would park. And we would stay for a month or six weeks, wait for the weather windows, and end up with the King of the Hill, which obviously, you know, was a good day to focus on and around, and there was, you know, waiting mm. windows. And I uh, started just getting involved in that crew. And at that time, that was uncharted territory. Mm. So who was some of the crew that you were riding with with these, like some of the names that the listeners might recognize? Hello, David Pinkerman was on the Rad Air team, so he was bunking with me. Nick Barada was my roomie. You know, Whoa. Jay Lisko was around. Um, Richie Fowler. Uh, that was um, yeah. Oh, there is like there is like Alex Warburton, very oh, yeah. very influential person in my life up there too, and a, and, a, and, a, and a name to be mentioned. Then you go to the Tex and the Ox. You go to Rob Morrow, and then you start going up to Farmer, and yeah. then you go to uh, Goodwill. Yeah. And, you know, and it just starts, and there's a million others. Um, there's Miles that's the local, and there's Ronnie, and there's so many other people that were even just local there that were, mm. that were Donnie Mills. And, um, yeah, it was a big, big pack of powerful, wild cowboys, you know? So things were as cowboy up there as the stories that I've heard secondhand sort of thing. Yeah, yes, and it was... So, um, I don't know if we should promote all this because obviously kids like think that's cool or it's mm. not cool. But and I, and I know the sport's grown, it's matured, and we have great athletes now. And if if you mm. want to take care of your body and end up maybe like me at fifty five, still being healthy and everything's in one piece, you don't want to kind of ab- go through that abusive period too much or too yeah. long or even at all. Yeah. But you know, we had Pennywise and Offspring up there playing at concerts. We had pistols falling out of people's pockets <laughs> at mosh pits. <laughs> And then yeah. there was all the other seductive elements mm. that came into play when the posse rolled into town. So you can imagine mm. all these pros mm. and, and ca- let's call it cowboys yeah. coming into saloon town 
well, that has a big impact on other people that fly in just to play with the Cowboys. Yeah. And the Cowboys know it, and they know it, and suddenly it's just, it's saloon time. And because there's so much downtime, mm. there's a lot of playtime. Right. Fucking, wow. I mean, Pennywise at their height, and Offspring before anyone knew them. Ah, they that would have been insane. Yeah, you, you. I mean, I, I was a Euro, so I wasn't even that up to speed on everything. And Holy it's just, shit. It's just very, very cool. The things I saw, the things I experienced. Um, <laughs> I mean, guns falling We out won't of... talk about on this podcast, <laughs> yeah. but it was a fabulous, fabulous, fabulous time. Mm. Our pilot, Chet Simmons, had f- crashed, I think, three times. It may have been more, I don't know, during the Vietnam War. You know, it was like the... The right. Halley pilot, half his foot was blown off, and he was the only guy I would fly with. Holy shit. So <laughs> so I watched a few years back a, a documentary called Lines on the History of Big Mountain Riding in Alaska, and it's either Tex or Mike Ranquit talk about a Vietnam vet helicopter pilot whose idea of avalanche control was shooting a gun out the window or something. Was this the same guy? Yeah, yeah. Holy yeah, if you came shit. close to his... So it was known, if you would if you would make a mistake, you know, there's always the rules and regulations around a chopper, and that's really important to know them. And, and I think in general, for, for everybody listening, make sure you really, really adhere to the rules of big mountain riding, to the rules of snow and alpine, you know, avalanche risks and danger. But when you get into chopper world, you better listen to the pilot and the rules, you know. Mm. So his, a lot of his... Um, he told you the rules, but there was no room for a mistake. So if you got too close to him and he felt like you were putting him at risk, he would shoot it. He would, the first shot would go over your head. Holy shit. The second shot, <laughs> he wouldn't be joking. Holy fuck. I, mean, I, I guess uh, you go live through the Vietnam War, it's going to tweak your way you see things a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, you do everything you need mm. to survive, you know, first and foremost. Mm. So the competition was pretty, as far as the riding went, was pretty rowdy. You were riding there with Paul Trapsky, is that right? Yeah. And I just remember hearing about just the thing that blew me, like the, the events, the riding was just sounded insane. Right? Um, I'll tell you what. The insanity was there were so many unknowns that there was so little control. Mm. There was virtually no security. There was some backup, mm. but we were all loose cannons ready to go off in terrain that we didn't really know and weren't able to view or explore or track. And a lot of our first time seeing the faces was when we were dropped off at the top. Holy and, shit. Um, you know, it was, it was guns blazing all the way, top to bottom, you know. So I think that put a certain amount of risk, if you will, today mm. that wouldn't be accepted however we were accustomed to that that's what we were used to mm. it wasn't putting us into unknown terrain because that's how we rode that mountain all the time nothing that we went to had already been ridden yeah we were never dropped off at a face or no that's not true we were dropped off numerous times at faces that had been ridden before but what we were looking for were first descents so that's just what you got used to Wow, so I mean, you've got first descents in Alaska under your belt, sort of thing. Yeah, I have wow. a few, and I have. Um, That's a. I named pretty... one, and I have the name of one. So there's a Kiwis. Yeah. In Alaska, you can go ride Kiwis. Right. You take you go to the chopper pile and say, "Take me to Kiwis," and you can go ride Kiwis. It's it's uh yeah, it's there. <laughs> That's a pretty cool thing to have under your belt. Yeah. In the snowboard world. That's yeah, it's humbling. Yeah. Fucking awesome. Yeah. yeah. 
Those things also, right. they come by default too, and you don't name it. It's the pilot that usually names your run. Right. Um, it, was a, it was a line that I had spotted and I wanted to do, and we'd already done a few others. We'd actually named another one, which is called Downwind. No, Downwind is, a, it was, sorry, Downwind was getting sessioned by Parada and Farmer, and we didn't want to go to where they were because they were doing some crazy shit, and I knew I wasn't going to be able to do what they're doing. So we went and looked at another place, and I was with Tony Harrington shooting at the time, and we did New Way. It was then called New Way, and you can go ride New Way. And across the valley, um, there was this face, and it was full exposure, um, top to bottom, so it was like there was no exit, really. You had to, like, commit to the line. There was a lot of volume, and then at the end of the day, they called it Kiwis. Wow. Yeah, Kiwis is still there. Wow. (laughs) And... um... So I've always associated Paul Trapsky as that sort of skate style riding with oh, yeah. um, Tony Walston. Yeah. Um, so he just took a, like a duck to water to that style of riding as well, sort of thing. Like because I mean, Laskett's no joke, especially it's not like Jim and the M1 or yeah that sort of thing. Like, so so you, I don't know how well you know Paul. I don't for know the him people at all. that know no. Paul, for me there's Paul and there's Steen. Mm. Okay. Paul was the quiet sidekick of Steen even. Steen and Paul were together constantly and all the time mm-hmm. because they both grew up in Auckland. Yeah. Um, I met Paul through Steen and we spent a lot of time together, as, if you will, as a trio. Mm. And um, what I knew about Paul at the time was he was kind of hard to get, get to know. Mm. His writing did all the talking. And he was a risk taker, but he was calculated and he was inbreakable or impenetrable and you needed that up there yeah especially when you start scaling your board size and when you scale your board side and it's constant 45 50 55 degrees with you with depth and volume and speed there's so much more gravity coming at you Mm. things just change in alaska and he just had the body size the capabilities um the prowess and the 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 character and that that attitude Mm. to be able to own that kind of stuff and and his freestyle aspect and escape mm. motivation just was the you know it was the perfect recipe for for just amazing uh amazing uh writing and, and and viewing actually i loved watching that guy ride rad i mean people have no idea when they watch the videos like how steep and how gnarly alaska is and you watch these parts now with like um, nicholas Mueller and travis rice where they're throwing like threes and whatnot off runs that can only be described as certain deaths if you get it wrong it's mm. like really quite awe-inspiring and awe-inspiring yeah the one video i recommend everybody to watch and watch it really focused and try to understand where they are coming from and what they're actually doing is dark matter dark with matter. elias elhart yeah a fantastic writer german yeah and travis rice Right. That video today is still blowing my mind. Like, that shows a little bit mm. of what it's like to be in that state and what it's like to ride Alaska, how consistently intense it is. Mm. Um, and it's that consistent intensity at an extreme angle with an extreme depth mm. um, with no stopping. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's just ongoing four-line activity that makes that environment so special and so mm. addictive you know? 
Because there's always, I remember when we watched videos, and there's always that one guy in the room that's like, well, they're only turning, I can do that. It's like, no, no, no you can't. <laughs> and not, not where they're going. You have never turned <laughs> in a slope like that, yeah. ever. And, yeah. It's so crazy. Yeah. And you roll into things you have no, you cannot see where you're going. And once you're in, you're not stopping. Like that first 60 foot of an Alaskan run, you actually can't see where you're going. Is that right? Because there's just that constant roll. I mean, that happens more than less. Yeah. Not all runs are like that. Some runs you're straight in mm. and you can see your first, you know, your first line and then it will vanish. But so many others, you get dropped off and you think you are where you are and you're not. Until you actually roll over into it, and then it rolls more. Jesus. And you start having slough. Yeah. And that slough is something that we're not used to if we haven't ridden up there. There's nowhere else in the world that has so much constant, continuous, and dangerous slough as I've experienced in Alaska. And mm. that stuff will, will fucking take you out. Yeah. yeah. If it's going off the cliff, you're going off the cliff sort of thing. Yeah, it'll just take your board out from money. It'll take you out, you know. Holy shit. And um, those are the things you have to learn that you're not aware when you're watching a video or you're riding in your local resort and you're mm. getting a little bit of scuff or fluff. The volume that's coming at you from so many angles mm. is, um, is is quite humbling and, and, and thrilling at the same time, you know. So that um, video I mentioned before, Alliance, that was uh, Axel Purportier did it. And it's one of my favorite videos to watch, um, well, movies to watch, because I like how they show behind the scenes. Like, you, you only see the glory shots, and this one they're following Giggy Ruff and Travis Rice and Nicholas Mueller around, and you see Giggy Ruff back away from a line. And it's like, I almost think like everyone that's a snowboarder needs to watch that and be like, all right, I can just, even if I've hiked for an hour, I can just back out and walk away if it doesn't feel right. Yeah. And because if Giggy's gonna do that, if that's good enough for Giggy, it's good enough for me. Yeah. And, and I think anyone, if anyone's listening, check out the documentary lines. It's yeah, pretty awesome and good insight into how gnarly Alaska is. And you've got like Johanna Lawson and Victoria Jalous talking about like slough management. Yeah. And how hard it is to actually ride up there. It's definitely worth yeah. taking on board. It, yeah. Well, yeah, you, know, you could if you know thyself, which means you yeah. wouldn't say you can do it now. You need to know mm. yourself. You need to know what you're capable of. And the funny thing is, like with Giggy, who's a, who's a great friend, and I have much respect for him, um, the Giggy today doesn't mean he's the Giggy tomorrow. Yeah. He may have had a change in his emotions, dietary issues, might have had a tweak, might mm. have had a slam, or might have just had a bang a day and thinks the next day is going to be the same. He will roll into something and he'll check it. Mm. And he'll check it, and that's why he's still writing so well because he's smart. Mm. Stuntmen only have a long, a, a short period of longevity. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. I mean, I was lucky enough. To Alex go... McDonald's was a stuntman. For really, me, you know, he was like right. the stuntman, and I was always like, oh, it scares the, he scares the shit out of me because he's <laughs> yeah. such a stuntman. Yeah, I mean, I've had a, we've had a few people like just even working at Cadrona come through like the crews that like, oh yeah, you won't be snowboarding in two years. You know, if you just send it off everything without thinking about it, that's uh, something that's going to catch you sooner or later. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I was just blown. Like, I, I was lucky enough, I went to Alaska six years ago, I think, and nowhere even, didn't even, like, did a couple of heli runs, but nothing even close to what you guys would have done or what I've seen on the movies. And that was, we were on a guided run, and I nearly still ended up in a crevasse got told off by the guide understandably and it's just one of those things where it's like holy shit like the mental mapping 
like the run we were on was pretty mellow and there's no way I'd be dropped off on that by myself yeah. like, and it's just impressive the mental mapping these riders have they're dropped on top of this face you've got, to, you've got to make sure you get to the right of that rock watch rock that rock and it's just it really put the zap on my head Yeah. and i got to stress like I wasn't doing anything close and it was still like the craziest runs I've ever had in my life Yeah. and so cool to see that such a beautiful place and yeah yeah, and I think the guiding, um, the guiding is great. Uh, it eliminates mm. a lot of like um, a lot of risk. Mm. It doesn't eliminate all the risk no. because you're still responsible, and you know you got to own that shit. Yeah, um, we didn't have guides. We couldn't afford them. We didn't want them around. They were in our way. You know, yeah. they would they would dictate stuff, and they didn't know the terrain. Yeah, and they probably it's new terrain. So what are you gonna? I mean, what are you gonna ask the guide? Oh, have you been in like? Uh, if he does, if he says no, then what are you doing here? You know, like and, if, uh, if I ever had a guide. You know, have I ever trusted anybody? And if I never needed someone to, like, you, you, you follow someone off a jump on a mountain bike and you, mm. you take their wheel and they'll, they'll, they'll tow you in. Yep. Doug Coombs, uh, he was a hood local from Oregon. He spent so much time up there with Kent Kreidler and the crew. They were all the, like, big mountain guys at the time. Um, that you needed that level of knowledge at times to get you to a place where you can then be set free to go and explore. Yeah. So, you know, the people who've done the time, it doesn't matter what you're on. They know mm. snowpack, they know conditions, they know they know melt, they know, you know, they know slope angles. Mm. So they can help you get to a place. So was Doug Coombs pretty understanding of the way you wanted to ride the mountain too? Yeah, sort of yeah, thing? he was awed as much as, it. yeah, right. he was awed. You know, and he, right. he, you know, sadly enough, he made a mistake too um, and died, mm. you know. Uh, in the middle of his, in the middle of his, like you know, of his prime, um, and those those are sad moments, you know, when you lose friends like that. But um, I built a lot of trust through him because he had the knowledge and experience, and I was a zero when I went to Alaska. I was shitting myself, you know. I didn't even know how to manage the volume standing on my board, and it was up to my knees, and you know, I just like the scale was out mm. of out of this world, you mm. know. Um. You kind of remind me then of um, a Powder and Rails documentary where they document uh, certain pros and Rankwitz got a, a episode on him and he talks about his first time going to Alaska. It sounded like that, like he lands and Tom Bird or someone's like, oh, come jump in with us. And he was like looking at this run being like, if I had a gun to my head, could I even do that? And then it's like, so he jumps in the chopper with them, doesn't ask too many questions. He's like, oh, where are we going? He points to the run where he's like, could I even? He's just saying he's just locked up, like, holy fuck. And, yeah. yeah I can so imagine that happening to Mike at that time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we we know Mike, and, and even today, is such a talented human and, and is such an incredible snowboarder and such an explorer and experimenter, you know? Mm-hmm. Um but when you compare him to Tom Burt or Jim yeah. Sellers or Bonnie Sellers, you know, and what they were doing back then, yeah. they were the true alpinists. And, mm. and there's no one more amazing to follow. First tracks, first descent down an unknown trail as Tom Burt. Really? You know, that's right. just, okay, hang on. This yeah. is my mountain and you've never been here before and you're riding it better than me first time. He's just that in tune with what yes. he's doing. Yeah. Rad. So he's in tune with himself. Mm. You know, it's not just bravado, huh? Mm. Guys are really dialed humans. Because, mm. I mean, it was interesting to hear Rankwitz say that when I was always looked at him as like, well, he's that dude that grew up at Mount Baker riding with Craig Kelly, who is like 
the man. And so, I mean, it really puts things in perspective when a guy like him's like, holy shit. And yeah. Well, so you were kicking around with Tom Burton, all those dudes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Holy shit. So that's gnarly. Because I just remember Tom's, Tom Burton's part in TB2 and as well, I must have been about 14. And it's like, I didn't even know you could snowboard down there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and some of the stuff like yeah, I'm probably never gonna snowboard down there. <laughs> yeah, and don't get me wrong. For me, I mean, it's next level for me. Mm. I mean, I I don't even put myself on on any parallel to anybody mm. else because those people for me, like I keep saying to everybody, it's about the you. You mm. know, I was never cons- I never considered myself being at the same mental level mm. as those people because they were so comfortable in their environment. Yeah, they had so so much ability to block things out where I may not have. So I felt vulnerable and I felt inferior, you know. But, yeah, we rode together and it it was nice. And I think one of the biggest aha moments for me was um, working with uh, Matt Goodwill. Yep. um, In the the Shadrach, Meshach Abednego film from Four Line in France. And I was doing a film part with him, you know. Mm. And uh, Fowler and Liska were with us. So it was kind of, it 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 was all about big lines and big mountain and finding your space and your play and and goodwill uh he would put on he, he always listened to sepultura and he had it plugged That's right so here so i always remember with his big back gloves his big yellow black gloves you know and his crazy hair and his crazy teeth and he put that on and then he'd drop in and and i'm like you are i'm so not even in my zone yet and you are so owning not only your zone but the whole aura around you Holy and shit. that's why you're such the king you know Christ, because he got a lot of people's attention when he went up to Alaska the first time, right? Yeah. Off, like, school bus, I think it was called. Yeah, the 100 footer. Huge rock. And yeah, which is right in front of you from the boy. You can just see that thing, you know. Holy so it's just, yeah, it's like right. I mean, theatrical. Anyone listening, go, I think they talk about it in lines. Just go check out that movie if you can. It's. You and Straight told me something I've got to ask you, and I remember seeing the picture in New Zealand snowboarding. Ooh. In New Zealand snowboarder. So in the mid-90s, I've talked about it in a few, Hygie and Spy and Ewan's episodes, the Barrows Big Ear competition. Oh, yes. Yes. And there was a um, sequence shot ran of you literally headbutting a camera. Do we, oh, do we want Is that the about? one on the Piranha cover? I don't know. The cover photo? I, I yeah. Couldn't, yeah. couldn't tell you, but um, like... Like an open exposure, like five-frame sequence? Yes, yeah. yeah. And yeah. uh, and Ewan was like, you've got to ask Danny about that. So here I am asking you about that. Uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I think many or some, hopefully most people know of the Wanaka Big Air and Barrows mm-hmm. Car Park, which was went on for a few years. I don't think it happens anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, it was... It was a crazy engineering feat to even do that back then, you know. It was just rough as guts. Yeah. But even for there, that was high tech. Yeah. And it was a big air and it was in town. It was next to the pub. Yes. And we had a crowd. So there was a stage and it was just amazing. I mean, to be able to do shit like that back then and be invited to be part of the guys competing. Mm. Anyway. So big air, Barrows Car Park, um, Ross Woodhall, photographer. Okay had a new lens and he was standing in the landing shooting the riders coming down 
The new lens, I don't know what it was, 7200 or it may have been longer, I, don't, I have no idea what lens it was. Um, he wasn't able to um, gauge how far he was away from the riders and he was stepping into the landing. And I came in, I remember doing a back three, coming down and the minute I landed, the first thing I connected with was his lens in my face. Oh, shit. Like literally upon landing, his camera lens smashed into the right side of my face and uh, knocked him out. He got whiplash. His, his, I think the lens or his body got broken. Um, the frame, the shutter stayed open and got that shot, which is quite incredible. You see me coming around. And um, I was knocked out. And uh, I remember them putting me, I just came to as they put me in an ambulance and they drove me all the way to Dunedin Hospital and they checked me out and they said, we can't operate right now because you're just too swollen, you know, there's just too much of a mess. We don't even know what's wrong with you. So um, that was my end of my Barrow session. Um, and I ended up spending, I think, five days in Dunedin, three days at a friend's house on the floor in the middle of a room waiting for the swelling to go down. Holy shit. And uh, then I went back in, then they operated, reconstructed the eye socket, stitched everything else up, um, told me that I have something wrong with my eye, and I ended up wearing glasses for eight years after that. Right. I lost 90% of my eyesight in my right eye after the Barrows accident. Holy Kept shit. riding and everything, wore yeah. lenses when I was snowboarding, which I hated and sucked. Mm. Um... Eight years later, eye technology got to a point where I trusted to have an operation. They fixed it, and I'm 2020 now. So nice, nice end to that story. That's yeah. Right. And uh, maybe one of the scars in my life where I started to pull back from, you know, show events or, you know, risky jumps, just things, things like that. They just leave an impact as mm. you get on. And I mean, it's pretty early on in my career, but. Um, yeah, I didn't go doing any more inner city jumps after that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, those events were pretty magic. I remember yeah. seeing a couple of them when they moved it to Lismore Park and yeah, you know, my my uh, but the Barrows ones, I I would just find out when I'd read the magazine and be like, and I just remember seeing that sequence shot, and be like, holy shit, that's yeah. that's hectic. Yeah, it was it was a big it was a big smash up. Yeah. Mm. Great event, great event, you know. Mm. All the years we did it and all the fun we had and all the after party. I mean, it was just great. I mean, just, geez, so lucky to be part of that part of the industry. Yeah. Um, so, seeing as we brought up Ewan, like, you've obviously known Ewan for a while. Like, how did that all come about? So, Ewan obviously was part of, uh, I mean, I think he is the, I just saw him yesterday on the mountain and we had a good hug. He is the oldest employee mm. to ever have been part of the Cadrona, you know, yeah. um, brand and business. So he was always part of that environment and platform. And um, we bunked in queue down together. We spent good times together. We rode together. We grew up during my times in New Zealand, which for me were quite short periods of my years. Mm quite intense short periods he was always an integral part of the hospitality the generosity the talent um the growth and the development of snowboarding and my part of snowboarding and the contributions in Cadrona and the events and 
being part of that kind of tight pact of I can trust this person I know he's going to be around we can do things together he was always known for his like big doughboy sessions you know on his board and um, such a good character you know and and, and seeing him yesterday after well I saw him in 2010 at the New Zealand Open last time so seeing him yesterday and then seeing how healthy he looks and how well he is and um, it's it's nice to know you have friends for life once you you know you've you've, yeah. you've done your miles with them. And he's like the biggest GC up there too. It's always rad when you see him at work. Like, you and Straight on. We're gonna have a fucking decent day at work today if yeah. Ewan's around. It's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. Oh, sweet. And with that era too, um, we've mentioned Tony Walston a couple of times, and Ewan's talked about him too, and how sort of a far ahead of the Kirby was, trick selection, all that sort of thing. Like, were you running around with? Much or? Yeah, Wooly. Thanks, thanks to Steen. I think I was, I was able to spend time with William for you know when we were coming down, we were often coming down with photographers and filmmakers, and there was an editorial intent. So we would go to a lot of the club fields. We would go to um, the smaller stations and the bigger stations. We were pretty well ride as much and as places as we could. And if in any way it was possible to have a Kiwi rider with us because there was obviously European writers writing with us and there was a European photographer and we were trying to get content. When Wooly was on board and when Wooly was with us, we kind of sat back and waited yeah. and watched. He, he, would, he would do things that you're like, are you going to be okay? Are you going to, what? You did, oh, he did it. You right. Know, done. <laughs> done. Done and no one's going to do it. He just would take things. He would have his own mind. He would find his way. He would set his line. He would lock his trick. And he would ride away with just, that's that's wow. the woolly moment. You so know? And that was, that, he was unique in that. And he was so quiet, mm. you know. So what's the most unique thing you've seen Wooly do on a snowboard? Um, a very, very thin, long pinna line in Oha. Oh, he's got it named after him or something, isn't he? I don't know. I hope so. Yeah. It's, it was, and there's like, um, a compulsory drop in between. It's <laughs> super, super narrow. You, once you're in, you're committed. It's just this pinna. And that, for, because that's not what Wooly was known for either, you know? Yeah. You know what I mean? So for him to take that on... It's kind of like Paul Trapsky, right? Like, if you're following the magazines like I did as a teenager, well, yeah, I'd see, like, just the skate-style stuff, and, and it was mind-blowing, like, the front three cross-rockets and all that. It's not really yeah. something you associate with, like, this hairball stuff. So, yeah. I mean, was that the same sort of impact for you guys watching that? Like, I thought he was just a jibber, and he's just gone and done yeah. that. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it made me wake up and go... I'm incomplete. People like Wooly made me feel incomplete. It made mm. me... Sh- Every time I came to New Zealand, I realized how, how much I still had could grow mm. uh, if I wanted to grow um, in snowboarding or even as a person about knowing what it is that I'm doing in this sport and how much more I can maybe contribute if I open myself up a little bit more and not be too like, this is what I do, you know, this is what I'm known for, like, this is my safety trick or this is my safety turn or this is how Mm. I look cool. Or Those people were always the ones that made me feel really humbled. Mm. And then fast forward to like now and or even a few years ago and you've got someone like Will Jackways that rides everything. You put rails in front of him. He'll handle it. Alaska, he'll handle it. 
jumps he'll handle it sort of thing and sort of I almost want to say and I could be wrong on this but Paul and Tony kind of started that sort of idea of you can write anything that's in front of you sort of thing yeah and yeah, and Q. Let's not forget Q. Quentin Roberts. Yes. Oh, uh, absolutely not. And in a way, Q before Will even, in my yeah. eyes. You yeah. Know. Um, yeah. I sort of skipped a whole generation there. Yeah. But, you have the Qs. You have the Trevs too. You yeah. know, there's people that came from the skate background and started getting really good at just being great writers, mm. and they would surprise you in most things. You thought you were really skilled in a in a certain aspect of the sport, and they would just come in and fucking just floor you. You know. Yeah. And suddenly you realised, oh. They see it from a different angle. They saw what you did, they saw what others did, and now they've interpreted it in a whole new new light. You know? I mean, we've talked about Quentin a lot, and understandably, because I think he's like a, one of the most naturally gifted snowboarders ever. And he had a really long run as a pro snowboarder as well. Yes. And, and like he might not have been a household name of, alongside your favourite international pros, but he had the respect of all the international pros. Yeah. And... And like Haiji talks about this gap, I didn't even know it was doable at Cadrona that Quentin did. And you, anyone else, you call bullshit. But when you learn it was Quentin Robbins, like, oh, that's not even up for debate. He definitely did it. Like, yeah. And yeah. And it's funny you talk about Quentin. Just, uh, I mean, I pushed Quentin as a, as a conversation topic, uh, respectfully so. But just after um, we spoke about Will, the, it's interesting when I sit back, I couldn't even tell you here and now without having them in the room why they think a Quentin evolved and developed and 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 arced his career mm. and even finished you know snowboarding at the international scene level yeah it's not that he doesn't snowboard anymore or or, or Will took his arc and went to where he's went he went mm. you know and it's really hard to understand because because people perceive those individuals and the value within them yeah um, and, and allow them to be promoted or support their, their, their joy and their sport and their ambitions to be athletes in different ways, you know. Mm. And that, that's something that um, when you look now at Zoe, yeah. who is the next gen for me, yeah. um, and it's so rad that it's a girl and she's a Kiwi and she's not just a girl and a Kiwi, but she's period, hands down, 221, the chick in the world to watch out for, mm. you know. And she has a risk... Oh, there's the thing I, I mean, I have a lot of time for Zoe. She is a good person. The thing I was quite stoked on watching was the natural selection, where yeah. she outright just that last run bolts. Um, but she had a respect for what had come before her. Like she knew that she was running against Hannah Beeman and Jamie Anderson and all these powerhouse riders and. And that that's kind of cool to see that she understands who she's riding against, but also what's come before. Mm. And that's pretty cool. Like, mm. uh, it's, I'm around a bunch of kids sometimes that don't know that. And yeah. it always impresses me when you've got the young guys coming up that sort of have an idea of who Quentin Robbins is, those sort of people and yeah. stuff. And I put it down to clarity, you know? Yeah. Mark McMorris is crystal fucking clear about what he wants to achieve. Yeah. It doesn't matter what the others are going to get as a result. Mm. 
but he knows what he wants to achieve in the environment he's in, which means he has competitors, he has runs before him, he has runs after him, but he also has terrain and he has skill sets. Yeah. Same with Travis. Yeah. Same with Gigi, who went out in the first round. Yeah. You know, you're like, ooh, everybody's clear, but at the end of the day, everybody's clear. Mm. You know, so Zoe's up against Zoe must be incredibly clear in her mind where she's at right now yeah. at that moment. But she's up against others that are equally as clear about why they're in this event. Yeah. You know. And that's what makes that so impressive to see that clarity across the board. Yeah. But then to see someone spike and just own it all the way through. And that's what I have massive respect for. Because yeah. it can it can cloud you, huh? Yeah. It can really, really clutter your brain being in that environment, that world. It's distracting. It's confusing. You know, it, 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 there's so much going on, so much energy. There's screens, there's results, there's scores. You're thinking about home. You might have a niggle in your thigh. You know, you're, you're thinking of next week. And those, yeah, the clarity is what, what counts when they when they get to that. That sort of driving that out and focusing on the here and now sort of thing. Yeah. Rad. Yeah. I mean... Yeah, I can't, like, Zoe said yes as soon as I approached her, like, before she left. Didn't even hesitate. It's like, rad, and we have so much to talk about now. Yeah. And that was so worth getting up at 5.30 to watch. Like, so true. Yeah. She's the one, she's actually the only, I mean, I yeah, she's the only one I watched all the way through. It's mm. funny, you know, and I, I mean, I have good friends in there. I was, my ticket was an Elias yeah. and Gigi, and they didn't, they, they went out real early. So I was kind of checking in to see when the semis and the finals were going and, whether Mark went through or Travis and, you know, awesome. I was surprised some of the people that didn't make it through, like Eric Jackson and Giggy, yeah. and I was yeah. like, whoa, I did not see that yeah. coming. Yeah. And But then I, as an outsider, like I've not followed competitive snowboarding a long time, so I wasn't really aware of what the judges were looking for anyway. It was yeah. just me being a snowboard fan, being like, oh, well, surely Eric Jackson, he's a big rider, surely he'll <laughs> make it through. Like, so I was really blown away, and even when it came down to Zoe and Hannah Beeman, it's like, oh, I really want Zoe to win, but that's Hannah Beeman. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it just happened. Like, whoa. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And yeah, you throw, you're throwing jokers all the time. Yeah. You're getting thrown jokers at you all the time in that event. Tracks, yeah. bomb holes, you know, snow condition changes, yeah. little mistakes and mishaps with speed. It's not a slipstyle run, you know, or a pipe run. Yeah, it's yeah. Not. It's not. Well, it was interesting. Snowboard Magazine put a post up congratulating Zoe on her run and put the whole run in. And it was uh, disappointing and interesting reading some comments. There's always some tough guy on the internet, right? And some dude was like, oh, but there's only a 360 in Wildcat. Me and my friends do that all the time. It's like, yeah, but you're not doing that there. You know, like, Zoe's capable of, like, double tens and all the stuff in the park. She'd annihilate most people in the park, and she's... Shows you how gnarly that course was that it was a 360 in a wildcat. And same with McMorris, he wasn't chucking quads anywhere. You know, it's sort of... And we, we spoke about know, it earlier on in the podcast. The we, yeah, we spoke yeah. about, is it the trick mm. or is it the person? Yeah. And is that person refined enough and disconnected enough of, from the tricks yeah. to understand what the whole aspect is all about? And yeah. those, they're the ones that blame through. Yeah. The guy that's carking on her in a... In a in that like tweet or whatever that was that he just yeah well, he's irrelevant we don't, I mean we don't even know his name right so yeah, it's irrelevant go on, go away. so whatever um, so you had a long I'm guessing a long career as a pro pro snowboarder like and then judging and all that sort of where did life take you after the 
pro-snowboard judge thing sort of ended? Sort of what happened next? Um, end is a good well, sorry, point sorry, to address. To... So snowboarding, and I think that's an important one, whether, you know, no matter what kind of support you get, mm. be it from your parents or your employer or the sticker sponsor or the shop or the government, yeah. um, all things come to an end or they change constantly. And I was never educated or coached or mentored how to end a snowboarding career. The only thing that spoke to me uh, consistently was my body. And I was like, I'm getting tired. I'm just tired. Mm. You know, it was 15 years. No, yeah. sorry, sorry. 12 years, fully pro, fully paid, fully responsible, um, nonstop. So 22 winters. Yeah. And I was just exhausted. And I was exhausted from this repetitive responsibility because I wasn't evolving, if you will. No. I was guaranteed to get the courage and the needed to get the checks and to fulfill that responsibility and the rest of the time I was doing was focusing on the judging and I was focusing on product development and global team management for Northwave and you know evolving maybe the next gen and the next athletes and making sure that um, the product I was wearing was then maybe getting someone else's name on it and so forth so I had that new career step by developing product and knowing I could always find a job or a position in the industry but the day I lost my $30,000 check from a sponsor and I realized that is an average way for a person that goes nine to five to work for, you know, 11 yeah. months of the year, I freaked out. And yeah. I'm like, this could, this could really, really go south tomorrow and I might have to get a job. Mm. So I went into, um, you know, reflective mode and I started with um, putting on something that I felt I could own with the resources I had saved during my career time. And that was the Crystal Awards which is a snowboarder photographic event. And I paid homage to the photographers and the media makers and not so much the snowboarders because I felt those are the guys that helped my career get to where I was. And because I took the all the money I'd made in snowboarding and I put it back into something that I believed in, which was content done by content creators, it took me in a new path straight away. Because people looking for content and content creators, which are ad agencies and brands, saw the content, even though it was snowboarding content, but it was undiluted and pure in a very new, different way. I don't know if you know the Crystal Awards. I, I know, I knew of them, but yeah. I sort of not not well. So yeah, and that's fine because mm. that was also a period, you know. Yeah. Um, but the ad agency started calling. I didn't even know what an ad agency was, but they called and said, "Who made this content?" We need someone to make content for us. The client is Lance Armstrong. We are the agency for Nike. Boom. And I suddenly became a producer for content for global brands and agencies, totally by default. Right. The catalyst was I invested in ongoing into something that I believed in and that I felt I was skilled and had passion about. And 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 I studied it and I did it well. Without any expectation for return, just I wanted to create something of worth. And Mana Media, which is the production company I've had for the last 20 years, was born. And I started working in the, let's call it the advertising realm, you know, where the production company or the content house that created all the visuals that you may see around the world or have seen around the world was done partially by 
that company. Nice. And Mana Media is still going yes. to this day. It's still going to this day, but I've pulled the handbrake on driving the five offices and all the employees and managing agencies and brands. I pulled the pulled the handbrake in 2019 yeah. um, for the sole reason to focus more on my well-being and my family and just having time of investing in, you know, human space and, and yeah. not chasing brands, economy, business and... You know, yeah, capitalism. <laughs> and so I think they can sort of put us to. Um, so what are you up to now? And you still snowboarding that sort of thing? I'm doing. So I'm. I'm the my primary focus every day is to get up and and have a fulfilling day. Mm. And like I said, I do check ins in the morning and I check out at night and I kind of visualize how I want to be in the day and what do I want to achieve. And depending on where I am, like. Yesterday I was going riding with, uh, you know, B. Dig and, and, and Graham. I actually prepared for that. It's mm. quite funny, you know, like I stretch in the morning, I warm up, I decide what I'm going to eat, I make sure I'm in a good mindset and I release every, all my challenges as a human, you know, my problems that I have in my life like everybody and I just focus on that and then I close out the day and today I, well, since a couple of days I knew I might have a podcast with you and I was like, <laughs> okay, when am I actually going to be comfortable with that you know yeah because it's 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 yeah it's yeah. a it's it's a moment you know well i was hella nervous you're the first person <laughs> i've interviewed that i don't know oh apart from choice. this is tanny kiwi maya who was on my bedroom wall <laughs> from new zealand snowboarder and it's been like holy shit it's oh, like almost nice. had a panic attack when when you were like oh should we do it today and we we're at the cafe in town like fuck 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 fuck, fuck. holy shit <laughs> Yeah, um, but bro, then you sent me through those notes of things you thought you'd talk about, and I'm like, oh, he's so organised. <laughs> no, no, literally, that was literally, I'm coming. Oh, he isn't. He's like, I had no idea, you know. Oh, oh thank God so I've still like, got the issue of New Zealand snowboarder, which actually brings up something that, um, what's this about a Women's Day eligible bachelor from back oh. in the day? <laughs> That's a dig in the past. Mm. I don't even know if they have Women's Weekly in New Zealand anymore, do they? I, I don't know. It's, it's, I'm not exactly their demographic for <laughs> So, I suppose in the 90s, yeah, um, I had quite a bit of traffic in New Zealand, you know, like media traffic on TV and in the, in the local press and the newspapers when I'd come into town on the North Island. And the New Zealand Women's Weekly, which was that crazy rag that your mother would read when she'd go... Uh, or your, I don't know, maybe your father read it too, or I definitely didn't read it, but they'd go into the waiting room, mm. the doctors or at the dentists yeah. or wherever, and it had all the gossip in the yeah. country and all the people that were TV presenters or hosts or whatever, there was drama and was, was in that New Zealand Women's Weekly. And every year they had uh, the New Zealand uh, Eligible Bachelor of the Year, and it was subtitled Who's the Hunkiest? <laughs> And um, they called me and they said, would you want to be part of it? And I says, what does that mean? They says, well, we're going to send someone, we're going to ask some questions, we're going to send someone around, we're going to take a photo. And I said, who, who, am I, who's, who's, who, who are those people you're going to choose? And they rattled off a list of people and I didn't know any of them. And I says, well, if I can tell you exactly what I want, in the sense of who I am and what I like, what colours I like, what my hates are, what I eat, because that's what they ask, mm. you know. What food do you eat? What's your favourite colour, you know? Yeah. What's your favourite music and all that stuff. Um, and I can send you a photo that I like about myself and I'm not going to do a topless under the waterfall next to my favourite car or, you know, mm. after the barber shop 
because that's literally the kind of photos they yeah. had in there. Um, and uh, yeah, they said yes, and I, I was became one of the eligible bachelors <laughs> for that month for, in Women's Weekly. Oh, shit. Kind of a funny little, you know, oh, spike in... Weeze side note there. <laughs> exposure. <laughs> oh, man. Advice... Do you have any advice for um, aspiring pro shredders? I think we've probably... The whole episode already is. Yeah. Um, anybody aspiring to be or do anything, rule one, stay aspired and go and do it. Don't even be flinched for one moment that you're going to fail because failure is part of success, first and foremost. We are all flawed humans and we will all fail in the path to success to as we aspire to be something or someone. And that aspiration will change often through, you know, through your entire life cycle. You know, I aspire to be things and be a better person and, and, and um, develop my Thrive for Life platform to, for the well-being of humanity and humans all the time. But that's something new to me and it's just now. So for kids today, um, focus on mentorship, whether that comes from a friend or a student that you're with at school or your parents or an icon or an advocate, focus on having that advocacy and ask questions, be curious, um, inform yourself. The more knowledge you can have about the environment that you're going to be confronted with, the better you're going to be at managing conditions as they're put in front of you every single day of your life. And believe me, you're going to get shit thrown at you every single day of your life for the rest of your life. So the more you get ready for those conditions, physically, mentally, spiritually, economically, um, your well-being, your support mechanisms, your understanding of your environment, you know, the understanding of your goals, staying true to those goals, you know. Um, yeah, those are, those are all key elements in an entire package to, to achieve what it is that you want to achieve. Oh, sweet. Mean. Well, um, that's my notes, exhausted. Have I missed anything? Was there anything we need to talk about? Um, like, I'm sure I've only just scratched the surface, really. I mean, there's definitely yeah. no needs. Uh, I want to I wanna just, you know, thank every Kiwi out there for being a, yeah. being a good Kiwi. <laughs> <laughs> um, for keeping, you know, keeping the, keeping the island true and and growing us all into you know honest humans when i when i look at the rest of the world and being exposed to different cultures mm. uh, i think we have a very special place to call home we should never forget that we should never um undervalue it and we should take it forward and if you get a chance to share some of those values um and some of your aspirations and inspirations with others outside of new zealand go and do it they will be thank mm. you for the rest of their life all right, well, um, we'll move on to a uh, stock enders now. And there's no, no rules with this one. You can talk as long as you want about each, each thing. Uh, favourite rider? Uh, favourite rider? Alive or dead? <laughs> Either or, man. Huh? Shit, you can pick one from both if you want. Yeah. This, this is all you. Um, I have um, a deceased favourite rider that's Tommy Brunner. I have um, a, a favorite writer that's you know that I don't see every day because he's come you know he's still super pro. That's Gigi Oof. Yeah. 
And I have three riders that I spend a lot of time with in the Pyrenees. Um, And that's Manuel Palacio, who's an ex-pro skater from um, Spain. And there's Mikel Sanchez. No, sorry, what am I saying? Yeah, (laughs) Mikel Sanchez. He's also Spanish. Um, And Conrad Linder, um, also a Spanish. And they're they're just you know talented humans that are just as inspiring to be around right and um that's about it sweet yeah. uh favorite mountain favorite mountain Baquera. Uh favorite board favorite board um i have my gantam stick um i had a never summer swift for a while but it's kind of cooked now that was a fun fishy board and my 72 radio tanker oh nice yes. that you helped develop yeah well yeah. it's yeah there's been much more people involved these days but where they've brought it to if you if you're still riding if you if you ever ride a big board try that you'll be surprised how short it rides i had the same uh, thing with the doughboys when i rode with you on one day and i had to pinch myself like, oh my god i'm riding with you in straight and he was on that doughboy behind you doing like shorter radius turns and I was doing on a 57 it's just like how Tully like gave it to me and made me ride it I was like oh now I get it yeah yeah it's you do you, cool. it's very hard to explain to people what it's like to ride us yeah. at the new really the new 72 tankers the radius yeah. um it's just something that's got to be done and you'll you'll become a better rider for it I mean it is a fucking missile but a very rideable manageable fun poppy missile yeah you know and obviously you know tara tamai who i know from alaska Mm. um his whole gentum collection and what he does and how he's helped my daughter with her free ride boards and is is just a great thing you know so i may actually go back to the favorite riders quickly because i feel like oh so favorite riders um again rest in peace uh tommy brunner he was always an inspiration and still is when I'm out on the mountain. Gigi Roof uh, is my today, let's call it pro favorite rider and just an awesome human being. And then Mikel Santa Cruz, um, Conrad Linder, and Manuel Palacio are my three bros that I ride with in the Baquera. We do tons of split boarding and riding there when, when I'm, you know, southwestern France in the Pyrenees. And um, then Tara Tomai, who I spent time with in, um, in Alaska in the early days, who kind of went on and did, you know, Gentum Stick and has been supporting my daughter with boards and product um, through his son also, Tama, um, is absolutely, a, you know, just a mind-blowing uh, icon and, and, and inspiration to me. Cool. So is he shaping boards for your daughter and stuff? So Tama... Yeah. His son, they're similar ages. Yep. Thomas, I think, a year older than Lani. Right. And um, when Lani started writing, I also I noticed very quickly that there wasn't enough products on the market that allowed kids to get off piste quickly and get into power. Yeah, you know, there just wasn't any, enough surfboards. Mm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was all centered. Um, they were all uh, yeah. They were just park focus yeah and they just they they turned easy but they just weren't they weren't boards that i would want to ride Mm. on and i felt that if i wanted to ride on it then my daughter would want to ride on it and it would be easier for her in the powder so 
um, the first board I saw was, you know, this little fish from Gentum. And then I said to Taro, you know, how do I get hold of one? And then he said to his son, send your old board to Lani. And ever since then, it's just been this swap process. Awesome. So when Tama's finished with his board, it comes over to Europe and Lani gets it. And she's just, you know, been evolving ever since as a free rider. And, oh, and, and you know, and I'm, I'm super humbled at it. You know, I get some boards off Taro 2 Direct. And I ask him, so what should I ride this year? You know, and he'll send me one of his preferred boards. And, Man. Yeah. I, I went to the Gintam showroom, showroom cafe in Naseka. Yes. And lost my shit at the shapes. Just so many cool shapes. And it's just like, oh my, I want to ride each of these shapes and see what they actually ride like. Yeah. Like, it's just, wow. And yeah. anyone who goes to Naseka, I encourage you to go and check it out because it's pretty cool what they've got going on there. Yeah. And Gintam if you stuff. go to Naseka or if you go to Japan period, if you want to ride that kind of snow and the terrain, um, the way it should be ridden, if you will, kind mm. of loosely said, get a Gentum stick and go ride that. And you'll realize, okay, I know why these boards are built and designed like this because they just, you know, they just excel on that terrain. Yeah, I remember my first time in the Seco and I was just on a directional cambered twin, you know, and being in the left line, I didn't really get where I was, you know. And I was in the left line to see all the locals, and they're on one of these like swallowtails with one piece. It's like, what the hell? The 80s are that way, man, you know? And and then suddenly they're like, you know, I'm struggling. <laughs> They've got fuck all tail on their boards, so they're just slamming quick choices, and obviously the jackets aren't lifting up, and it's like, oh, I'm a little far from home right now. I get it. And it was, yeah. And yeah. And there's some really cool shapers. Like there's a brand offshore that do stuff as well. And um, and Moya were just out in the Seco too. Okay. It's really cool. I had a look around their factory and was like, wow. Like, yeah. like uh, I think he was actually shaping boards for Russell Winfield and John Cardiel. Oh wow! It's like wow. That's some big names. And, oh, I mean, it was like John Cardiel's like my favorite skateboarder. Yeah. And it's really cool to see that sort of stuff. And favorite video part. Just got me thinking of Mark Frank Montoya and oh, Jay Lanus and just <laughs> Bjorn Lanus. And, yeah. Mm. MFM. And, mm. Yeah. I mean, no. Okay, let's fast forward. What else you got there? Uh, favorite video part? Uh, TB5. Just. TB5. Yeah. Is that, that's the one with Johan's part, right? Yeah. yeah. I mean, On mushrooms, just. <laughs> or is it LSD? I don't know. Oh, that doesn't even matter. I mean, just just. Oh, that adds an extra level of mind blowing to that part. I think we watched it at Barrows when it launched. I think my I think I saw TV Five launch because videos would launch here. Mm. That was the beauty of New Zealand. I think it was in Barrows, and I think half of the crew was in town so. for it. But yeah, and Johan, I've spent time with Johan, and it's just so humbling to see those guys mm. in parts and know them as humans and and realize they're just as vulnerable as anybody mm. you know but they just lay it down and they oh. laid it down so consistently and you know oh. um crafted the path for us mm. all moving forward well johan's part like i mean that just that was one of those pivotal moments in snowboarding right where people were just like oh we can ride the mountain that fast that fast yeah and was, was he one of the first dudes to actually apply tricks in the middle of hairball Alaskan lines? But sort of helped with what we see now in Alaska. Was Travis he, dudes, so. I think he was the first one that just opened it up. Mm. You know, everybody else was like technically riding the mountain, mm. 
you know, and yeah. going to a place and doing something. He just went, hey, it's flat. I can just go straight, you know. Mm. It's just like, let me go. Like that end of where he covers, what, 4,000 feet in 30 seconds or something? Yeah, like who? And, wow. Yeah. And these <laughs> days, you know, when you see the speed, the riding, it, it, so yeah, those things... Those things were things that at that point in time seemed unfathomable or unreachable, yeah. and suddenly they became part of mm. the everyday landscape. So I think it was the first free ride part I'd seen where I was like, well, that's a 360 in the middle of that. Whereas before I'd just seen like this gnarly Billy Goat, Tom Burt style of riding, and then yeah. you see that, like, oh my God. Yeah. Well, I actually watched uh, his part recently, like about a month ago, and there's only a couple of tricks you'd take out now. It's still. Yeah, 95% of it still stacks up now, which... So, like, you know, you just mentioned again, like, if you if that if that run, you you mentioned that run, mm. it had, what was it, four, t- four or six, I don't know, it was a few turns mm. from top to bottom. Yeah. So we remembered a run of an individual doing very little except just doing something that represented him. Yeah. And if that run had someone jibbing down and doing a tricky and that, you probably wouldn't have mentioned it or remembered it, you know. And that's where the personalities are the ones that actually... Because I remember the first time seeing that end of run and be like, oh, cool, someone going fast. And then when they um, bring up the stats on that, like on on the screen of what, what, how fast he's traveling and how much distance he's covered in the time, that's when it was like, holy shit, that is insane mm. you know favorite gig what do you mean by gig any way you want to interpret it Kim Haji's uh, talked about work gigs Spine Young talked about music gigs favorite gig Porno for Pyros and uh, was it Breck sick um, yeah and then a mate of mine yeah I think that was my favorite moment because we were there it was tight it was small Perry was there and then a mate of mine got on and started smashing on the drums after they all came down and started drinking with us and, and then he got ripped off the drums because obviously you don't do that <laughs> and uh then we um we left we were drunk we went out we went and picked up the car in the parking lot and mate starts thrashing around the parking lot and um, rips down a cable off the roof of the parking lot and decides because it damaged something on the top of his on the top of his truck called the cops but he was drunk so they arrested him mm-hmm. so he got arrested he got chucked in the slam and then I had to bail him out um, then he wasn't allowed to drive so we had to call a tow truck it was crazy and then we put the truck and we had to go all the way back to steamboat sitting in this truck on the back of a tow truck I had bailed him out and uh, yeah, the next day we ended up in Steamboat, but that was that was a pretty a pretty crazy gig. Another one of many crazy gigs, but mm. it's sometimes the little ones, mm. the compact ones. You know, I first thought straight, oh, Pink Floyd, or yeah, you know, Jane, even Chain's Addiction of the Bigger Man, or you know, mm. or where was I when this happened? But it's actually that little moment, you know, where Perry's next to you, and then your mate goes up and plays on drums, and you get arrested, and you bail him out and then you drive back and then mm. you know oh. like you know just that's that's and that's a, that's a pretty cool story yeah uh favorite city i don't have a favorite city sweet i'm not a city guy sweet uh favorite trick favorite trick turn mean the most under 
underrated trick I think there is. Are you allowed there. to say that? Yeah. <laughs> well, my favourite trick is surviving. <laughs> if tricks make a living, I made yeah. a living out of doing turns, that's for sure, you know. Sick. <laughs> uh, favourite board graphic? Favourite board graphic? Um, favourite board graphic? I think it was... I did a um, I did a tank at two hundred once, and I put a full uh, Mario Post tattoo right. on it. We embedded it into the top sheet, and then we took uh, power and placed it in the eyes. Right. And I felt the way that came out. I always tried to put kind of something related to my heritage or my culture. Uh, or my history or my past into my graphics in some way. Sometimes it was noticeable or not. But that one was the one that I thought came out the most, you know, Brand. the most authentic. Um, best method? The best method? Oh, Jamie, you know, like, what can we say? I mean, Very Mickey Fruit, if you're listening to this ever, you were the first guy doing a method on a poster in Beach House in Zurich that just got me kind of magnetized to what snowbeam could be and become he was the european champion at the time and he became right. a team you know a team rider or i became a team rider with him on red air so uh and he was doing a method and he had the the bad the, he had a method on lock um so everybody look up who mickey Frew is but jamie just i don't know that it's just i think it at least in our era mm. That's it. Oh, so Jamie Lynn method is just That's one of those it. things to look at, eh? Yeah. He's become very synonymous and iconic with with that trick. Yeah. And and a bonus question, what's the key to a good method? What's the key to a good method? The key to a good method style. Personifying you and your method, you know. Yeah. There's many ways to bake a method, but mm. when a method is styled out and yeah. it's not just a method done that you did a method. Mm. It probably means you put a lot of passion into it and you took it all the way to where it, where it could be, you know, taking it all the way. I mean, it's one of those tricks that has so many, like perhaps you're a Terrier, you are a method guy, or a Jamie in Pacific Northwest, both awesome methods, but totally different to look at. And yeah. Yeah, and you have a Nicholas method, you know. And yeah. You have, you have many unknown methods. I mean, there's just methods... Yeah. It's that's the beauty of that trick. It's mm. not easy to do. Yeah. Um, and it's so unique to mm. the artist. Yeah, like you put so like you put Christy Pryor up yeah. there with Will and JJ and yeah. the people we mentioned. It's like they're all so different, but god damn, they're all so good to look at. So did you just see Elias Hellhart's method going yes. into? Oh my god. Okay. So I don't good. even need to say more. Yeah. That is the epitome of a method done just just now, just current. Mm. And, and you compare it to methods done 20 years ago, there's not a big difference, but there's all the difference because it's it's just so ownable, yeah. you know, and Elias just owned it, you know. I mean, that oh. just made me so happy to see that. Yeah, that, that was really... Uh, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was... <laughs> it was like it was, it was, I got goosebumps. I watched yeah, it again and again. Yeah, and, and on rewind, being like, oh, it's just like so. One of the guys that's uh, working for me in the workshop, he's not really track based with the snowboarding. He's he's a mountain biker more so, and and I was so stoked because he 
he tagged me in it. And so obviously I've been ranting about methods enough for Sam to get it and be like, holy shit. He tagged Elias's he, into uh, he, he tagged me in that one and Elias is like, whoa, Sam gets it. Like, this is yeah, so cool. Yeah, and, yeah. Because uh, I've been telling them all that this mm-hmm. year I'm going to have a workshop staff method photo competition. So you all owe me a method. And <laughs> yeah. so Sam just do what you see the lights do i guess <laughs> yeah yeah maybe not don't start a corvette but that thing was just i mean everything about it yes you know beautiful. the way it was captured too like that's why i'm so so proud and and so grateful for the filmmakers yeah and the photographers that have bust their chops yeah to do this thankless job of lugging shit around in the most craziest conditions putting themselves in a place that isn't always the most ideal to watch as a spectator but it's going to make an incredible shot and then working with the rider yeah. working with the subject matter working with the environment working with the light and the weather and then hopefully you know the magic comes together mm. you know, and that we forget about that a lot in these yeah. and and even for all the young aspiring kids yeah don't ever forget what it's going to take to be recognized it takes a certain amount of documentation yeah you know you can be a closet champion but if you want to be exposed and recognized, there's a certain respect and understanding and collaboration mm. in engineering with those people that are documenting what you do. Mm. The better you are at that and the more relationships you create that you trust and understand and can interpret, fucking, I guarantee you, you'll have a great career. And before we sign out, have we got any uh, shout outs and thank yous? Well, thank you to you. Oh. <laughs> I have a new friend. Hey. <laughs> uh, and um, no, really, I really, this isn't, you know, this is, this is work. You've put work into it. I know you're so passionate mm. and comes from the heart, but it's work. And I want to thank you for that. Thank oh, you for cool. taking the time. It's, it's, it's a huge asset for others. Mm. It's a huge privilege for me. So I hope people can make the most of it. And, you know, I want to thank... Uh, yeah, I said it before. I want to say I want to thank my Fanao in New Zealand and, and and everything they've given me as a human, um, and uh, and yeah, that I think that's good. We're we good. Thanks. Thanks. Cool. Thanks, crew. <laughs> Sweet. I will sign out. Sign out now. Thank you so much for your time, Danny. And uh, we'll talk soon. Cheers. Mm-hmm.